in this endeavor, Dr. Mike Brownnut uh, came in and we had a long discussion um, about the intersection between um, religion and science. Um, Mike's background is, is in physics, fundamental or basic physics, uh, where, he's got a, where he's got a bit of history building ion traps with one of the foremost uh, leaders in the field of ion traps, uh, namely Rainer Blatt. Uh, he was, um, he was uh, Rainer Blatt's PhD student, or postdoc student, excuse me, or postdoc. And um, yeah, he, he was out in Austria for a number of years, and they came over to Hong Kong to uh, set up his own department, where he looks at the the intersection. Oh, shut up! Where he looks at the intersection between um, uh, religion and science, and we go into questions like uh, the difference between is and ought. In other words, should science um, prescribe? Sh should science be asking ought to questions, uh, whereas science is actually typically good at is questions and indeed religions are more into ought to questions versus is questions and how we sort of like uh, arrive at a sort of middle point I could say. We also look at uh, areas uh, on the internet of how technology is taking over life and how to sort of like retain the humanity, uh, our humanity being lost to uh, what what Mike refers to as machine um, machine influenced or machine uh, yeah machine influenced traits like efficiency and uh, yeah standardization etc etc um, it was good having Mike in that cup of tea that Earl Grey cup of tea was quite good and anyway, I, before I start blabbing, I should probably let on. And three, <coughs> two, one, and we're live. Mike, thanks so much for coming in. This is our, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's one, we've, I, I met you about, what was it about? I think it was two or three years ago. Something like that. Yeah, and, and we had, after a, a particular lecture, I, I recall us going to some pub, the three of us, Sebastian, Sebastian's here too, um, and we had one of the most interesting conversations I've had in a long time. And I thought, now that I've sort of set up this platform, I'd love to sort of reproduce that. I think it'd be great to sort of document that. Um, I make no guarantees for reproduction, but we yeah. can try and have a new one. We, I think we had a couple beers at that point, so a reproduction would be like... <laughs> we have tea. <laughs> well, yes, Earl Grey tea. <laughs> Cheers. <go. laughs> um, a reproduction would be like neon impossible. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how far we get with, with a conversation. Mm. A new recreation of the moment. Yeah. So, as you notice, we've got earphones, and the reason for this is so that um, I can actually hear... Well, anything that you say is piped through to my earphones and anything I say is piped through to your earphones. Imagine. So it's as, it's as if we're in this sort of like little bubble, this audio bubble. It's as if we're like right opposite each other actually talking to each other. 
whispering and kissing sweet lovelies into each other's ear. We can stop there if you want. <laughs> we can. <laughs> it's, it's the problem is it's, it's Zoom, right? You've just got so used to like having conversations with people where you've got headphones and speakers and, and webcams and things that now you're like, I'm actually sitting opposite a table with him. With a human being. With a human being. Can, can we just have he- headphones and a webcam anyway? To- <laughs> it's like, Jesus Christ. What has Zoom done to it? Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, okay, um, we met you through, no, not, was it through Rainer Blatt, eh, Sebastian? Uh, yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rainer Blatt and David Wineland came around. And uh, Rainer Blatt, he, you, you're a you're, um, postdoc uh, student with Rainer Blatt. Maybe you want to go into your background, background. and um, your connection with Rainer Blatt, you know, the, the work that you were doing with him back in Austria. So, so I did. I did my PhD uh, with the National Physical Laboratory uh, in London, uh, building iron traps, um, and that was a part of a collaboration with six different universities uh, around Europe. Uh, one of which was Innsbruck. So Innsbruck was was using these iron traps that I was I was building, or at least they were they were. Um, Full disclosure, the one that I was designing, I don't think that ever worked. But hey, I got a PhD out of it, so we'll, we'll go with that. But anyway, uh, so I was I was building these iron traps, um, and and we were collaborating with Innsbruck for that. So once I'd finished my PhD, I then I then phoned up Innsbruck and I said, uh, I I happen to know that you have this project running, and uh, I happen to know how the project works because I've been working on it for the last little while. Are you interested in a postdoc? So they said yes, and I then moved out to Austria to work with them with designing and building. Uh, microfabricated iron traps. Um, so I did. I was two years there for a postdoc, and then six years as an assistant did my habilitation on future architectures for trapped iron quantum computers, which sounds really exciting, but isn't. It, it is really exciting, but it's really exciting for different reasons. Go into that. Um, so there's there's like the, there's the standard there's the standard standard quantum computers that you use. Um, where, where, like, they work, and and you turn the handle, and art, nature papers come out, um, and <laughs> they they tell you deep truths about the nature of the universe and reality, and like, when I first got into physics, like, you know, you you've got these big questions like, what is the collapse of the wave function? You know, why does the double slit experiment work? What's actually happening? And and you know, these these are the, the sort of big sexy questions of physics that that you go, yeah, this is what I want to answer. Um, and and one of the really nice things about working in Innsbruck is is they really do, you know they they run these experiments that really get to answer these questions and it's awesome and it's really exciting. Um, but the the problem they were facing basically was was they've got these experiments which run and and they could you know if they look five years down the line or ten years down the line they said you know we can we can just keep ramping these up and they're going to be awesome but at some point they're going to hit the wall. And if we don't have something in our back pocket ready for the next generation beyond that, then we're not going to be able to move forward. Uh, so my job was to try and look at, at what the next generation would be. And that was just, it was, uh, so that the German term is Dreck-Effekten, uh, so dirt effect. Um, so, you know, I was, I was worried about noise and I was worried about things not being correctly filtered and I was worried about metallurgy and surface contamination um so it's you, you, you you're you're 
you know aiming towards these big deep quantum mechanical mysteries of the universe things and and the thing that's limiting you is you've got a thumbprint on your trap um oh for god's sake so that which is destroying the vacuum or what it's destroying everything um <laughs> so so yeah and 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 this there, there were lots of there were lots of questions where it turns out that you know when, when you're trained in quantum mechanics um there are certain things that you know and and you know these deep deep mysteries of the universe and you understand the way you function and how things evolve and it's wonderful and but there are certain things that you don't know like you don't know how to do metallurgy so we, we, we were doing these things which seemed sensible to us as, as quantum physicists uh, and, and they weren't working. We didn't understand why they didn't work. And then we'd, we'd talk to some metallurgists and they go, well, obviously. <laughs> obviously it didn't work. What kind of moron would, would try and do that? And then so we had to learn something about metallurgy. And then it still didn't work. And so we'd, we'd you know, go to some people who were doing electron, electronic engineering and, and, and we'd say, well, we, we've got this problem. We don't understand it. And no one understands it. It's this big mystery. And they, they looked at us and they said, well... I've got a, I've got an electronics engineering paper here from 1960s um, that explains it. <laughs> oh. So so uh, it wasn't anything new. It was just new to quantum physicists. Um, and so you know a lot of what I was doing it was it was you know that the, the metallurgy was known to the metallurgists and the surface science was known to the surface scientists and the electronics was known to the electronics people yeah. um, and and the quantum theory was known to the quantum theorists and so on and so forth and the the, the sort of new the new thing so to speak was actually trying to take all of that and put it together um, because no no one person typically understands all of those things so so for what I was doing essentially you know you look at any bit of it and someone would say yeah we knew that um, but then it was it was trying to sort of synthesize all of that together into into one thing uh, which which didn't tell us deep and meaningful things about the nature of the universe and, and what the wave function is and so on and so forth but it was fun so it was more tangential stuff than actually answering these exciting questions that you wanted to answer, right? Yes. They, they, I mean, but still very interesting. Right. right. I mean, the, the problem was, I mean, it, it became a new question that I wanted to answer. I mean, it, it just became consuming. Okay, all-consuming. Uh, I mean, right. it's, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd go home to my wife of an evening tremendously happy, and she'd say, did, did you find a new heating rate? And I'm like, yes, yes, I've got this. <laughs> And and there was one particular graph that I that I agonised over for about four years trying to get this, to, trying to understand this graph um, about about um, spectral density of, of electric field noise, um, which which is is you know not on the sort of you know when you're when you're doing sexy things about about collapsing wave functions, right? Collapsing wave functions is cool and weird, and spectral density of electric field noise is not cool and weird. But it, it just it just became something which I found tremendously interesting. Mm. Um, so yes, yeah, so I, I chased that down. And what you're doing, I mean, you're, you're, you're doing physics still. You're doing the same experiments, right? You're building iron traps and you're building lasers and you're looking at spectrometers and things. Uh, it's just that the person next door is doing physics to find out the nature of the wave function. You're doing physics to try and find out why your trap doesn't work. Um. <laughs> I see. <laughs> I see. So was the side of you that was more sort of attracted to the theoretical side? Mm. Heavens no. <laughs> Stay the hell away from. Uh... Um, excuse me. Uh, I am. I. I would. I would. When I was applying to do a PhD, mm -hmm. um, I, I applied to, to various people in various groups, and there was 
there was one one theorist to whom I applied and at Imperial and I, I got an interview and you know I'd, I'd, I'd prepared for the interview I'd, I'd got some of their papers and I'd read their papers just to see you know what they were doing so I could ask you know sensible questions and they were doing they were doing quantum cavity stuff and uh, so I, I, I pitched my questions and about three minutes into the interview and she looked at me and she said you're an experimentalist aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> so I was I was busted uh, yeah no not a theorist <laughs> yeah it's a completely different sort of way of thinking and yeah. approaching the problem entirely and you, it's the, 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 if you want to know like if someone's a, a theorist or experimentalist it's really easy what you do is you give them a paper yeah. and you say you know have you seen this paper before do you know anything about this subject right and, and a theorist they flick through and they go, oh yeah, I recognise equation seven. And experimentalists flick through and they go, I recognise figure four. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, yeah, the, the, the theorists just, just look at the equations and the experimentalists just look at the pictures. Right, right, I'm right. A, I'm a picture guy. Yeah. But you've moved out of, um, of, of ion traps um, for about, what's it, nearly five years five now? Five years now, just over five yeah. years. Yeah. And, um, but you've moved into philosophy kind of thing now. A yes. new sort of like a... Tell us, tell, tell us more about this, but, but more in specific, I kind of want to lean the, this conversation in the direction of, um, well, ro re revolves around what we had, that conversation that, that other evening, which was the sort of foundations, the underpinnings of the science, scientific method, and how the, the mentality or approach or Christ, the Christian mindset actually sort of enabled that to a degree I thought I thought that conversation was absolutely fascinating and you know it's as an atheist I, I, I thought it was it was just it was amazing um, and I'd like to really sort of go into that and sort of hear your side of things and and just sort of, sort of you know get a handle on that yeah so um, yeah I mean like for, for those people who are watching this and they've been you know <laughs> happily listening through to stuff about quantum mechanics and waiting to understand what the wave function is doing and you're saying now from a Christian perspective you know. <laughs> didn't see that coming um, so yeah so this is this is now my this is my life now um, so uh, I I um, you know when, when you're doing research you can you can do the same research as everyone else is doing and, and that's that's not interesting and it's not particularly helpful because uh, no one wants to fund what everyone else is doing you, you need to you know you need to branch out and do something new and interesting that, that maybe other people aren't doing mm. um, and, and and carve out your niche that's, that's doing something something interesting which according to most funding agencies means something different um, and and you know so you so if you're if you're working on iron traps you can say okay well well you know let's Iron traps is great, but I'm going to work on the electronics of iron traps. This is this is something new. Or you can say, okay, iron traps is great, but I'm going to work on on you know commercialising the laser systems. Great. Or I'm going to work on understanding heating effects. Great. And and so I was I was looking for what I could do that leveraged my sort of my physics background, uh, but but would then would then uh, allow me to step into somewhere new because. There's, a, there's, you know, there are some people who can, who can, try and set up an entire new research group and go toe to toe with, with Rainer Blatt, uh, but I'm not that person. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not many people are. <laughs> not, not many people are. Um, so you know, if if I could, if I could sort of, you know, find find somewhere where I could, you know, stick my mark on the world without without having to try and be, you know, Rainer Blatt or Dave Wineland or someone. Um, and so so, 
love them to bits awesome guys it was oh, a great. pleasure working with Reiner it was yeah. he's a brilliant boss um, yeah. but uh, yeah so I was I was looking for something where I could I could uh, I could go and, and do something different and uh, I had a degree in theology because I had free evenings and it seemed fun um, and so I, I, I was looking saying okay can we take the stuff that I've done with with the physics and the, which has been my day job today and the stuff that I've done with theology which has been sort of my my evening weekends hobby and put those together and actually make that into my new research direction um, and there are people there are people who are looking at science and religion um, there are there are lots of really awesome groups doing it I mean there are guys there are huge numbers of guys in, in Oxford doing it in Cambridge in Harvard in in all over the place um, Birmingham St Andrews uh, and no one pretty much no one is looking at it in in Asia mm. um, I mean not just not just not in Hong Kong I mean in in Asia it's it's almost a complete non-question um, so you know in in Oxford they have they have five or six different research projects all looking at different aspects of science and religion and how they relate to each other um, you know in one university whereas on an entire continent no one's really looking at it um, and so I thought, okay, well, here's here's a niche that I can do. I fly out to Hong Kong, uh, and and I look at science and religion, and how they interrelate in Hong Kong, mm. um, and and the the sort of the the knee-jerk reaction that a lot of people give is they say, well, science and religion in Hong Kong is is the same as science and religion everywhere else, right? Because because science is, is science, right? It's, it's just universal. If if Hong Kong science is not doing the same as as UK science, then they're doing it wrong <laughs> right uh, and if they are doing it the same as uk science well there's nothing new to add and and religion i mean you know christianity is the same the world over uh you know if, if if hong kong christians are different from uk christians then they're probably heretics and they need to get their theology sorted out um so so you know if, if you're going to go and do that in hong kong then then go and look at buddhism or confucianism or something we don't do in the uk right but but the notion that there would be something new and interesting to say from a hong kong perspective on science and religion either because science in asia isn't exactly the same as science in the uk or because christianity isn't in in asia isn't doing exactly the same thing as as christianity in in say europe um or because the way they interact isn't the same and and so this is so I think that, that by asking these questions within an Asian context you actually bring something new to the conversation you, you can look at it in a new and interesting way which maybe other people haven't noticed you find new questions and potentially you find new answers um, and even you can then sort of take some of those answers back to, to maybe you know, Europe or, or the US and say guys you've, you've been you know worrying about this problem for ages but but that you've been thinking about it wrong if you, if you think or not wrong but you've been thinking about it in a particular way which throws up these problems and and if you think about it differently like this then 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 you can maybe yeah, solve these problems that you thought were insolvable or conversely you can say uh, we thought we'd solved this problem and it turns out we haven't so you have a new question to ask which is always fun so uh, so this is this is what i'm doing now mm-hmm okay but let's go back um Let's go back into the okay, that yeah that's what you're doing now. But let's go back um, specifically. Like I recall during that conversation, you would go into you would go into sort of like the mentality, like the original day when 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 you know um, uh, the Bible 
sat with a certain weight in one hand and like you know, the, the, physis, the physics books sat with the same weight in the other hand. And then over a period of time, you know, in many ways, physics used to be able, could answer uh, questions that religions no longer could. Um, and, you know, the, the God of the gaps, so to, so, so to say. Um, but I remember you talking about um, some of the stuff like, which was just like, like how, do, how do I sort of get back into that groove of that conversation of the, of the roots of Christianity and, and how, how, how it sort of opened up, how, how it was, okay, for example, um, could the scientific method or the scientific uh, um, approach um, be arrived at in a culture other than Christianity? This is the, so. This is this is a good question, and and this is this is uh, an open question, and some would say this is a contentious question. Contentious. contentious. Well, well, we do contentious stuff, oh, here, don't we? Well, here's the contention. Um, right. So so, you know, if if you look at, uh, no, uh, and 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 it's also a question that I'm going to slightly duck, uh, but but no, bear fine. with me. We'll 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 go off in on, in 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 other directions, which are hopefully reasonably interesting for the next <laughs> two hours, three hours. Yeah. Um, so here we go. So there's there's this wonderful enlightenment notion that says the truth is the truth, and and which kind of seems obvious. So we'll go with it for a second, and, and and the truth is the truth is universal, right? It's it's you know two plus two equals four, right? This, this is no dispute, right? You can't say well, your two plus two might equal four, but my two plus two equals seven, right? Mm -hmm. Now now clearly, if it's true that two plus two equals four, then it's true for everyone, right? It's true for people in Asia, and it's true for people in Europe, and it's true for kind-hearted people, and it's true for murderers. It's it's true for everyone. So the truth doesn't depend on who you are. So, so the Enlightenment then takes this and says, well, in that case, so if we're looking for the truth, um, you know, the, 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 the joy about science, the grand democratization that science brings is, you know, if you, you've come from, you know, wars, splitting Europe war after war without end, where sure. you know, they're arguing over, is this piece of land mine or yours? Sure. And so what they're looking for is they're looking for something where you can take opinion out of it. They're saying, there is, there is, we're trying to get to some truth which all reasonable men, and they were thinking of reasonable men, uh, all reasonable men can, can agree on by sitting down at a table and, and discussing things. Would and this be the rule of law? Arrives at, we arrive at the rule of law? No. Okay. Because, okay, so, so with the rule of law, right, England has its rule of law, and France has its rule oh, of law. Definitely. And the English rule of law says it's perfectly okay to kill a Frenchman because they're French. <laughs> I don't know what French law says. We have Sebastian sitting here. Sebastian, maybe. what does French law say <laughs> about killing English people? <laughs> but okay. we, 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 we're just being facetious. We're being facetious. <laughs> Right, so we're not looking for the rule of law, mm. which is which is a, 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 a you know they wouldn't have viewed it like this, but but you know now we say okay, law is is some social construct. You know, people get together and they say okay, we are going to make these laws, and if you break the law, then we're going to bring certain punishments on you, and so on and so forth. Right. So this is but this is a construction of man, and they said right, we want the rule of something which does not depend on 
which kind of government you have and it does not depend on which country you live in and it does not depend on your religion and it does not depend on your opinions and it does not depend on your morality right we want something where we can say this is the answer and if you're a murderer you must accept that this is the answer and if you're a priest you must accept that this is the answer and if you're french or you're british or you're german or you're poor or you're rich this is the answer and if there is something that we can then appeal to where everyone can say that's the answer then we don't have any more wars because because you just sit down and you say well look here is here is this this court of appeal to use a legal metaphor this court of appeal here is this this thing that we appeal to and everyone can now realize that this piece of land belongs to england not france and all men of goodwill can sit down we don't need to go to war over it um and so so they had this notion and and this was this is this is then the age of rationality they said the thing that we appeal to is rationality right mathematics is is true for all people and and if if a frenchman has two rocks and two more rocks they have four rocks mm. and if an englishman has two rocks and two more rocks they have four rocks as well and mathematics is not dependent on your nationality and you can't pass a law that says two plus two equals five right the, 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 we don't care about the civil law what the government says it's just not true because two plus two does equal four mm. and it you know a muslim and a jew and a christian can all agree that two plus two equals four as so the great thing is mathematics then and and you know so, so, so numbers and logic are these things which are which are independent of people they stand above us and and so this seemed like the great hope for civilization this seemed like we can get world peace if we say we are going to accept as true all and only things which can be demonstrated to be true then we have world peace Mm. right because if and, and anything that you can't demonstrate by rigorous logic to be true you say well clearly that's this woolly thing that's not worth arguing about it's just some some fluffy side issue um and and anything which you can demonstrate to be true then you've demonstrated to be true and all discussion is done so this was the plan um and and one of the major problems was completely wrong uh spoiler well, because, because you could just say not what? No, 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 no. So, so, so here's here's the problem that you get. You you say, so we we it, coming from coming from them from the Enlightenment. You 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 work forward and and you say so. Given that, given that science has this self-correcting nature, as long as you're following this scientific method, it is our royal route to getting the truth. And when science says global warming is happening, there is no dispute to be broked. Sorry, I've just hit your thing. Right. When science says global warming is happening, this is the truth. This is what's happening. And yeah. all reasonable people, you know, if they don't believe you, you sit down, you show them the evidence, and yeah. then they accept it. Yeah. And if they still don't believe you, you sit them down again and you show them the evidence again, and they accept it. And because science has this, this you know, universal character, this, this self-correcting character, yeah. um, then it doesn't matter if scientists are corrupt or if scientists are French or if scientists are... Yeah. Jewish or if scientists are whatever 70 years old right science gives you the correct answer so you manage to, to sort of drop scientists out of the equation um, now the problem that you then have of course is so we've now spent a few hundred years telling people that, that it, scientists don't need to be honest that morality is not a question that enters into science 
and now uh, when a scientist says global warming is happening people say I don't trust you and you say why not say, fake news right and you say well why not is it because I have no reason to trust you why not because I've been told that you may well be completely dishonest or you guys built an atom bomb right so if you know so for example if 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 there's or there's big money involved big wind right if if the if, if what the hell's big wind it's big, like big oil but like, greener <laughs> oh big wind is in big oh, wind God, right Jesus. okay so you know we know that big tobacco can pay off people yeah. to say to say no. smoking doesn't cause lung cancer right people that build wind turbines have a vested interest in convincing everyone that global warming happens hmm. so we know that science is corruptible and yet scientists themselves put their fingers in their ears and go la 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 the morality of a scientist doesn't matter well we definitely do know that because i mean during during the 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 german world war ii you know plenty of experiments were done on jewish people i mean in china the japanese did all sorts of experiments on the chinese people and right. the most horrific of of horrific things were done. right and so, so right so now but then so I'm going to sit and play both sides of the argument just to tease this one apart. So, yeah. so you've got two things going on. One is to say that the experiments that they did are morally bankrupt. Um, you know, injecting poison into people's eyes just to see what happens or letting off atom bombs on, on civilian populations because you don't care about the civilian populations and they're cheap. Yeah. Um, so, so these are morally problematic experiments to carry out. And, and that's a relatively easy one to accept. But then the next question up is to say, but the answers they get, right, the answers they get are still the same. Right? So a morally bankrupt scientist will inject poison into someone's eye and say, yes, their eye exploded after 25 minutes. Right? And, and a, a, a good scientist, a morally good scientist, could observe the same experiment and come to the same conclusion. So while you have this moral question about should we do this science, there's a question. There's a separate question about: Is the answer which we derive from this dependent on my moral standing or my religious beliefs? Mm. And so people said your your religious beliefs might change questions of the the, the 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 normative questions about whether you should do this, but they don't quite change the descriptive questions about: Is this what happened? When you do this, does that happen? And so there's, there's this idea within... What do you mean by that? The descriptive. Right. So, so this is, this is uh, Hume's guillotine, the is-ought problem. Okay. Um, so, for example, uh, and so that the, the argument says science just deals with descriptive questions. Okay. And not about what is the case, not prescriptive questions about what ought to be the case. Uh, so let's see. take, for example, I can make a prediction. I'm a good scientist. I'm going to do a pre. A In other words, making models, right? Well, so let's say I have a model that says uh, if you keep on cutting down bamboo forests at the rate we're going, within ten years pandas will be extinct. Hmm. Now that's a good scientific statement because you can test it, right? You keep on cutting down bamboo forests at this rate, and ten years later you go back and you go, you know what? We have no more pandas. That right? science was good. Good science. Yeah. Right. But it's terrible conservation. <laughs> Right, so you have on the one hand you've got the, the the descriptive question that says this is the case. If you keep on doing this, we're going to run out of pandas. 
But there's a separate question, a normative question, as to what should be the case, namely, therefore we should stop chopping down bamboo. Yeah. Right. And science traditionally is very, very bad at engaging with these ought questions, these should questions. Oh, yeah. Right? I see. I see what you mean now. And, and so, so yeah. you can ask the question of, you know, if I inject poison into someone's eye, will their eye explode? Yes, no. Yeah. Right? It's a different question from should I inject poison into someone's eye? Yeah. Right. And so the argument says uh, that, that these normative questions cannot be decided by rationality. Okay. Um, a, a, a Jew might say one thing and a Zoroastrian might say another and a, and a Muslim might say another. Right? Yeah. So, so different religious perspectives disagree on these normative questions, but on the descriptive questions as to will we actually run out of pandas, everyone agrees. And so from the, the logic of the Enlightenment that said, if you can prove it by logic, then this is a thing worth arguing about. And we argue logically and then we sit down and we're done. And if you can't prove it by logic, then this, isn't, this, isn't, this is just some fluffy nonsense that we don't care about. Mm. But what you've done here is you've just removed from the discussion all normative questions about what we should do, how we should live, what I sh how I should act when I wake up in the morning. Mm. And, and one might turn around and say, I am not totally comfortable with, with removing from all discussion those questions. There are some people who genuinely think that we should look after pandas. And to be told, no, that's not, that's not a, a real question to be discussed, is a problem for them. So, so, so that's what I mean by the, 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 the is, ought, normative, okay. descriptive thing. So what happens when you remove the descriptive entirely and you're just left with this, well, that, that is ought to? Then one could reduce the entire, entire society to this, like, this, this sort of social justice warrior mentality, this woke mentality. Am I right? Uh, right. So, so. Or, or, or you sitting very uncomfortably in that chair there. No. So here's here's what I'd here's what I'd say is, um. There, there are there are people who would who would say, okay, we're just going to go for for the is. We're just going to talk about what is. Hmm. And there are other people who say what is doesn't matter right you you create your own future we yeah. have we have agency we have choice we make the world in which we live we're going to do out and we're going to we're going to claim the world that ought to be we will make the world just and right and good and the problem that the people on one side hit when they say we're just going to deal with what is the case yeah. is is you then you then have problems getting up in the morning because it is the case that if you lie in bed all day, you get fat and die of a heart attack, right? Yeah. But, but if you're not allowed to make ought statements, you can't say, therefore, you ought to get out of bed and do something, damn it. I see. So, so just trying to live in a world of is statements becomes very difficult because you can't do anything. Mm. Um, and this is so, for example, this is a problem with, with where, okay, we're talking about science and religion. We had to come around to evolution at some point. There's... there's a question when you just look at the naturalistic side of evolution, uh, there's an argument that say, you know, the strong survive. You know, if, if your granny is weak, your granny will die. Right? That, is, that is an is statement. Right? But it, it, it doesn't tell me what I ought to do. It doesn't tell me if I ought to 
look after my granny. It doesn't tell me if I ought to, you know, when she's sick, go round and bring her some food. Right. So, so while evolution can say it is the case that people who are weak and have no one to look after them will die, that in its own doesn't tell me whether or not I should go and be nice to my granny. Mm. So, so people who, who just want to stick to the is side of the world have a problem. But people who just want to stick to the ought side of the world also have a problem. Um, because because we, we beat ourselves against a real physical universe that doesn't care about what we think. Mm. Um, so, you know, it, it ought to be the case that, that when I say sensible things, everyone listens to me. <laughs> and, and you know what? I, I can say that ought to be the case for as long as I want, but it, it isn't the case. Um, and I can say, you know, it, it ought to be the case that, you know, my, my tea stays hotter for longer. Right? I beat myself against the laws of physics. Right? Right. The laws of physics do what the laws of physics do. Yeah. And, and my desire for ought doesn't change that. So, so we live in this world where some people just want to say, we're just going to go for it. And some people say, we're just going to go for ought. And in fact, we live in this world where we have to say, right, that we, we bring them both together and we wrestle in this tension between the two. Mm. Um, and social justice warriors are very good at one. And scientistic people are very good at the other. And both of them are failing to connect with, with reality as it presents itself to us. Okay. How do you find that middle ground? Is that, is that basically what you're sort of studying at the moment? Is, is how to introduce it such that, for example, um, I, I thought about, I'm not saying I'm any authority on the subject, but um, wouldn't it be good to have a society where one steers the scientific process such that human beings live in harmony with nature? Like this is an odd statement, very much an odd statement. But yet it factors in nature as it is, you know, the, you know, the fundamental laws of nature and like understanding or comprehending and copying them. Like, is there some sort of like statement that one could sort of arrive at that equally weight, takes an equal weight on both sides and one can sort of advance forward? Right. So this is, this is then where, it, where, where, good question this is where things start to get interesting is it another contentious question um or we, uh, uh, by the way you successfully dodged that last one yes. masterfully <laughs> <laughs> next bring it on i'm on a roll so so i'm i'm i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna dodge this one less i'm gonna, because this All is right. this is an interesting one okay so so Ooh, okay. if if so Another way of framing that is ought, and this is then, this is then, I'll, I'll haul into this. Ow, my glasses are stuck in my headphones. Who'd have thought? Okay, so, so this is then where That's the, an the, is statement, that is. Yes. Keep going. God, that was, that was so lame. Keep going. I ought not to distract you during this interview. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, we're going to keep going in this circle yeah. then. Yeah. It, it is a bad idea. Oh, I'm not going to respond. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so this is, right, okay, so, so. On this, on this is ought dichotomy. Now, now there is a perspective which says, okay, is statements belong to science? Science talks about what is the case. It is the case that if I drop something, it will accelerate towards the ground. Um, 
and, and one can't say that is a good or bad thing, right? No one says it's good that gravity works. Gravity just works. There is no ought about it, right? Yeah. So, so the laws of physics are simply pure is statements. Mm. So is statements are the realm of science. And, and you can test them. And, and they do everything that one wants to science. Ought statements, so this argument goes, are the realm of religion, right? Thou, sh thou ought not kill. Or thou shalt not thou kill. Thou shalt not kill. <laughs> okay. uh, you, you ought to be kind to your granny. So this is something that says that as soon as you get into ought things, right, you can't, right, there's no test that you can do. There's no experiment that you can do that, that, that lets you test whether it's true that you ought to look after your granny, mm. right? You know, you, you can make a prediction about something falling. You can say, you know, if, if I drop my granny out the window, then she'll fall and, and hit the pavement below. Um, if I do that, then I'll get arrested. But we can't make any ought statements about you ought not do that. Well, you can't test any ought statements about you ought not do that. So then you say, okay, now these are, this is the realm of religion. And, and the reason why this was problematic in the Enlightenment is people said, well, these ones we can test, therefore we can come up with some definitive answer. And these ones we can't test, so we're going to have to still go to war about these. So war is the remit of religion. And, and agreement and rationality is the remit of science. Okay. So, so I'm glad you're looking uncomfortable with that statement. We'll, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm so, letting you expand before I. <laughs> right. But this is so. This is this is the argument that people set up. They said, "Is statements are testable, and they are the remit of science." Okay. And they are, you know, so you have facts, you have testability, you have objectivity, you have public demonstrable knowledge, you have rationality. Right. And on the other side, you have these ought statements, which cannot be tested. They are untestable. These are now the grounds of belief, which means we're in the realms of religion. This is subjective. This is personal. And these are the kind of things that you can go to war on if, if you're not a well-adjusted person. And, and, and clearly, these are different. And so now, now, you know, and this sets up why people talk about science and religion, because they're clearly two completely different things, right? One's over here and one's over here, and near the twins will meet. Um, and so my, my argument, so my first argument says, but we live in a world where we have to keep a hand on both. So in, in one argument then is to say, okay, so we need both science on the one hand and religion on the other. Um, be because we, 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 we are confronted both by the universe and by the necessity to actually do something. <laughs> um, and so we need to bring science and religion together. So it's, it's Einstein who said that... that uh, Science without religion is now. I'm going to screw up the quote. Was it science without religion is? Science sans conscience n'est qu'un mythe de la peur. There you go. Good. Good. So, wait, 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 wait. Was that, was that, that was Einstein, right? That was who? Sorry. Albert Einstein. I think that's Einstein. Einstein yes. Yeah. Science without conscience is just wound of the soul or something like that. I only know the French version of it because I had it on a poster. What was <laughs> science sans conscience n'est que ruine de l'âme. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. There you go, wonderful. <laughs> um, so, so you've got this idea that, that, that says that, that, that you need both. Uh, that, 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 that science without religion is, is, is sunken, religion without science is sunken, and you need to hold these two together. Um, and so, and so that's, that's a reasonably standard position within sort of science and religion discourse. I am not quite sure I agree with it. And so here's, here's why. Uh, because it... it relies on this dichotomy 
of, of science is over here making is statements and religion is over here making or ought statements. And, and I'll deal first with why, sci why religion wants to make is statements and then I'll come to why science wants to make ought statements. Okay. And so, what, so, so the, the, the direction I'm going here is to say, in fact, this standard, this standard uh, dichotomization we have where we, where we tell ourselves that we can hold these two worlds separate yeah. uh, breaks down, and it breaks down radically, uh, so that we end up saying, being able to point to things and saying, I don't know if that is science or if that's religion or both or neither or some horrible mish, and I, I don't even know what words mean anymore. So this is where I'm heading. I'm, I'm uh, yeah, let's right. do it. So, <laughs> if, if by the end of this year I don't know what words mean anymore, <laughs> then I've succeeded. Okay, so here we go. So, um, within, within, uh, really, I mean, take Christianity as an example. Uh, Christianity makes definitive is statements, right? It is, it is a historic religion. It is grounded in history. And it makes claims like, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. This is not an ought statement. This is not Jesus should have been raised from the dead. This mm -hmm. is not Jesus shouldn't have been killed. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is an actual is statement of he was raised from the dead. Now, you can disagree with that. You can say, but he wasn't. But to say Jesus wasn't raised from the dead is also an is statement. It is not true that he was, right? So, but now... If this discussion of Christianity has moved from ought statements to is statements. And if you say, well, as soon as you come into is statements, you stop being religious, well, then you suddenly have to say that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead is not a religious statement. And I know people who will be unhappy with that. I know religious people who would be unhappy with that, and I know non-religious people who would be unhappy with that. So, so we find ourselves saying, okay, I have here an is statement, which is clearly religious, or, or we deeply, deeply want it to be religious. Okay, and then on the other hand, if if you take something like, um, let's return to our pandas. Uh, so I, I I commented on on killing off these pandas that it was it was uh, it was great science but lousy conservation. But now you ha you have people who want to do conservation science. Mm. And and if so, conservation necessarily talks about normative statements you should stop burning coal you should look after pandas you should save the whale you shouldn't import pangolins or eat uncooked bat right it wants to make ought statements right if it doesn't make ought statements it's not doing conservation hmm. and yet it wants to be scientific it wants to ground itself in 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 is statements and so so what you have to do is you say well okay we have some options either um, conservation science needs to stop doing conservation and I know people are unhappy with that or you say conservation science needs to stop doing science and I know people are unhappy with that or you say conservation science has at its very core a fundamental contradiction and it's, itself is meaningless and paradoxical and I know people who are unhappy with that or you say we need to redefine the remit of science so that we can have conservation science as a science which nonetheless speaks about and engages with statements of what we ought to do. Mm. And I know people who are unhappy with that, but there are fewer people who are unhappy about that than people who are unhappy about saying 
conservation science shouldn't do conservation. So, so here we have uh, these the, the blurring. On the one hand, science starts trying to make ought statements, and and, and I, I, this would be a contentious statement, but I would argue appropriately, it is appropriate for science in certain situations to make ought statements. And religion, which appropriately makes is statements. So now we, we sort of see these blurring of the two. And so the, the interesting thing about coming to Asia to do this is, is Asia never had the Enlightenment. So in Europe, prior to the Enlightenment, this blurring of these, this mixing of these categories between objective and subjective and mm. normative and descriptive and is and ought and science and religion and fact and value, all it, of this was mixed together. And it's persisted till today. And, and so it, mm. in Europe, it was all mixed together and the Enlightenment then separated them out mm. and did great damage to the world while doing so. Whereas in Asia, because the Enlightenment never happened, they're, they're still very much more mixed. So, so now we're kind of looking at this world that never had the, 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 the vandalism of the Enlightenment visited upon it. Interesting you mention vandalism. I am trying to formulate a question. Why do you call it vandalism? This is very interesting. Yeah, because like if you, for example, if you look at Japanese people who haven't gone, undergone the sort of like um, this enlightenment process, I mean, if you look at the samurai, you know, the samurai, they sort of, there to them there is no distinction between peace and war um you know okay we're well out of my no i know i know i'm i'm what i'm, what I'm trying I'll, to I'll, I'll roll with this we can we yeah, can yeah we no we, we, i'm <laughs> trying to i'm trying to i don't even know what i'm i'm just rolling too yeah, okay, yeah, but like for example perfect. like the japanese cultures is very much like sort of in, in connection with with nature and uh you know gods of nature and all sorts of you know the, the forest gods and all these sorts of things um and, you know, there is no sort of divide between spirit and body and mind. It's all one thing, essentially. Um, do you think that when you say the vandalism of, of the Enlightenment, are you referring to the separation or concepts of the, the spirit, the mind, the concept of the soul, etc.? Um, and how and how and how individuals are now so disconnected from their own individual selves that that um, you know we we do not even have find meaning even though we've got the wonders of of a harnessed scientific world around us and and yet people are committing suicide essentially is this is this what you're referring to by vandalism of the enlightenment yes oh. um after all these long answers, I'm going to get a short one. Yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you just left me stranded there, man. It's like I, 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 I try to, I try to, try to prime a lot of ground for you then, and you just left me hanging there, man. <laughs> um, no, okay, so, so let me, let me, let me fill that for, for the, 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 the nice ones you set up for me. I'll, I'll, um, I'll take a swing on. So yeah, I mean, if you look at because so, so the world. As I, as I said right at the beginning, the, the world in which we live has this interconnected character. If we just hang on to one or just hang on to the other, we end up, 
you know, being smacked by the other half of the world and not even knowing what's smacking us, right? Um, no, okay, I, lo I lost you. Sorry. Uh, so if, if, if I sit and I, I want to be, if I just take the ought side. Okay, I'll right? so back if to I'm, the is ought. If I'm this justice, yeah, okay. right, okay. Back, to the, back to the is ought, right? Mm. If, I, if I'm going to be this justice warrior, right. I get frustrated because, because right, there, there are there are brute facts of the universe which come against me, mm. right? And and having separated them, I'm like, but I'm, I'm, I'm talking about what should be the case. And the universe says, I don't care what you're talking about. I'm, I'm going to keep on smacking you. Just as other people are right. looking at you and saying, I couldn't give a darn right. flying flamingo what you think about what color hair I should have. Right. Or, or you know... You yeah, I could give some examples that would that would really get me in hot water, but, but you no, know, no there, I, there, I know what you're going to. Right, there, there, are, there are examples <laughs> where people say, oh, you know, I, I want to be treated in this way, yeah, and and what we want and how we are actually treated are not the same, yeah. Um, you know, I was, I was, yeah. We're we're not going to go down that route. No, no, yeah. that's not. So, um, so, so right, and and the same is true on the other side. You know, you you get you 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 live on this side of what is. Right, and and you lose the humanity that the the, the 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 very notion of of what one should do, what one ought to do, why one doesn't, the notion of purpose, the notion of meaning, the notion of hope, the notion of getting up in the morning for a reason. And and the problem is, for all that you cling to the is side, right, <laughs> the, the the universe in which in which we live, for whatever reason, is one where humans only really operate if they have a reason to get up in the morning um, and and so by separating out these two by saying you can deal with this independent of dealing with this which is what the alignment tried to do by separating these out it's it's to use a bad metaphor you know it's, it's if, if you take someone's brain and you say right I'm just going to snip between the two hemispheres mm. you've got the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere and I'm sure they don't need to talk to each other yeah who needs that right so so you know so this is this is what I mean by vandalism you have these two things which are tightly interwoven mm. and in the universe you know the universe interweaves them tightly and we say we're going to unpick them and we're going to act like that's okay and like we can walk through the universe with this separated thing mm. and the universe says well you you walk through the universe like that but you're going to get smacked by a whole lot of stuff that you didn't see coming i see what you mean now okay um and yes i mean taking taking for example with with the notion of, of gods and nature gods and so on and so forth um the of all these the, you know the distinctions that I, I i gave previously about science and religion and is and ought and public and private and fact no. and value another distinction which which turns up is looking at um natural and supernatural or body and spirit is another one right and and so the the, the enlightenment tries to tell us that there is this thing called natural and there's this other thing called supernatural and and you know different people might you know and and, and now we've just taken that on right now some people say okay there's there's this thing called natural so let's say religious people like if you if you if you you know christian says okay there's this natural stuff and there's this supernatural stuff mm. and an atheist might say well okay there are these two categories of natural and supernatural and this category contains nothing <laughs> because i can't verify it i can't for whatever reason there's a okay. whole pile of reasons why they might say that mm -hmm. but they say okay we have we have natural and supernatural and everything that's in the universe is natural 
Right. And and religious people might say, okay, there's natural and supernatural, right. and and both things exist in the universe. Hmm. Um, but this is this is a very strange idea, and in fact, the, the the closer you look at it, it becomes incredibly difficult to actually pin down what we mean by the distinction between natural and supernatural. And so, for example, you know, people people say, well, you know, natural is the stuff that science looks at, and supernatural is the stuff that religion looks at. But that then becomes problematic. Um, I like your I like your furrowed brow. You um, like my what? Sorry, furrowed brow. <laughs> <laughs> problematic, you say. So, so if you if you, to take take science for example. So we say, okay, well, the stuff that you know, how can we define natural? What is natural, right? So. God is supernatural, miracles are supernatural, the soul is supernatural, okay, and tables and atoms and electric fields, they're natural. And and so we've got this distinction. But for each each time you do that, you end up with there's always these these sort of liminal boundary cases where you go, uh-huh. So for example, you know, as 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 science has progressed, it said, okay, there's this stuff that's, that, that we understand. I mean, broadly speaking, <laughs> over the thumb definition of, of natural is natural is the stuff that science can talk about. Okay. Right? So, 150 years ago, right, we could talk about steam engines and we could talk about mechanical power and, and so yeah. on and so forth. And so you had, you had atoms in motion, right? You've, you've, you've got mass is real. And time is real, and space is real. Yeah. Right. Why do we have? Why do we call our system the MKS system? Right. We're talking about mass, space, time. So M for, for order was wrong, but but uh, M for space. So so we're talking about about mass, space, and time. These things are real, right? And 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 you can. Sorry, I've just screwed up your mics, right? But but they're things that you can hit. They're real things, and everything else, like the soul and belief and gods and things, they're supernatural. Um, and then, and, and you know, Maxwell worked really hard to say, well, okay, electric fields, or uh, didn't say electric fields. He said, okay, how can we understand magnets? How can we understand electricity? How can we understand this thing that's going on in a in a gold leaf? Talking about ether, right, and all that stuff. I'm not going to get to ether yet. Okay. So, well, I am, but 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 not for the sake of ether. But what Maxwell tried to do was he tried to come up with a mechanical description of light. Okay. And and the reason he tried to come up with a mechanical description of light was was very simple. Uh, light is is natural. Light is real. I mean, God might have said, let there be light at the beginning, but ever since then, light is not a supernatural thing, right? Mm. So we feel that light should be something that science can talk about, which means it's natural, mm. which means it's got to be talked about in terms of mass, space, and time. It's got to be talked about in mechanical properties. Mm. And because, because anything that's not these three things is some weird, spooky thing that's not real. Mm. And, and he worked very hard, and in the end, so he, he comes up with, with, with a... A, a field description of it hmm. and so there's this big argument about what fields are but in the end long story short so we, we, we say okay well there's this thing called charge right? charge you know energy I can reduce to mass space and time kilogram meters per second squared we're good force I can reduce to mass space and time hmm. right? kilogram meters per second we're good 
speed I can reduce to mass, space and time in meters per second. We're all good. All of these, all of these mechanical things you can reduce mm. to mass, space and time, and they're real. Mm. And now the problem that you have with electric fields is suddenly you've got this extra thing here of charge. And so you now say, okay, we've got a couple of options. Option one, we can reduce charge to mass, space and time. Mm. Option two, we can't reduce it to mass, space and time, which means charge isn't real. Or maybe charge isn't natural. Or charge is some supernatural thing mm. because natural things can be reduced to mass, space and time. Or option three is there's something else which is natural but can't be reduced to mass, space and time. And obviously history says we went for option three. And, and, but, but here we suddenly see that that, that which is natural is flexible. Right? Mm. We, can, we, can, we yeah. can change it. So, so our notion of saying natural is whatever science can talk about actually turns out to be more right than we anticipated because now we're saying, okay, well, as long as science can talk about this bit, this is natural, and all this stuff out here is not, this is, we're going to call it supernatural, it's yeah. more than natural. Okay, but as soon as science says, oh, we can talk about this as well, then this extra bit here suddenly stops being supernatural and becomes natural. Right? The universe hasn't changed, it's just our ability to talk about things that's changed. And you know, spooky action at a distance, what is entanglement? Right? Well, as soon as, like, as soon as physicists get a handle on something, as soon as they say we're comfortable talking about this, well, suddenly it becomes natural. Right? Ah. ESP. Right? Now, we don't have a handle on this. We can't talk about it. Physicists aren't comfortable talking about it. So they say, well, that's clearly something supernatural and spooky. But if ever we did find these empathic fields, you know, we found electrical fields, we found gravitational fields, you know, if ever we did say, oh, look, I've got this detector that goes ping when I have it, it gets hit by an empathic field. If at any point physicists became comfortable talking about empathic fields, then suddenly ESP would not be supernatural, it would be natural. Now the universe hasn't changed, we've just changed what we're happy talking about. Right. Now that would then say, let's say we managed to find the soul. Let's say that whatever developments in science happened to that, and this isn't because of with, with taking charge, right? This isn't because we can reduce charge to something within science. Mm. This is just because we stretch science a bit. So let's say that the soul is nothing physical. It's nothing material. It really is something, by current standards, supernatural. Right? But let's say one day someone discovers something that, that is the soul. Right? Have we proved that supernatural exists? No. Because once we're happy talking about it, we just say, oh, well, that's natural. Yeah. Right? Let's imagine... However it might work, let's imagine one day someone manages to prove that God exists, right? And they, they get this detector that goes ping and says, there's God, right? As soon as scientists are happy talking about it, well, God's not supernatural anymore. He's just natural, mm. right? So, so in fact, to say this is natural says nothing about the universe and everything about what we're comfortable talking about. And, and so it, it, it turns out to be this definition which tells you about me, but not about the world. Yeah. It's very me-centric. Right. So, so from, from that point of view, to, to tell me something about the world, to say this is natural, this is supernatural, turns out to be relatively unhelpful. Um, and, and so using that as a difference between science and religion, where we say, okay, well, you know, science talks about natural things and religion talks about supernatural things. Well, that's, that's really not, not quite true. Um, and, and if it is true by some definition of natural and supernatural, it's not helpful. Mm. Um, and, you know, if, if you look at, if you look at, I mean, religion says, go and help the poor. 
right? Go and feed the sick. This is as natural and as mundane and as down to earth as you can hope for. But if you say, well, no, feeding the poor is not a is not a religious act because it's not supernatural. Well, you have a different understanding of religion to Mother Teresa. So clearly she was doing something religious, but it was also a natural act. Yeah. Um, and so and so this I mean you mentioned God of the Gaps earlier. So this this thing comes back to that. In fact, we have the opposite problem. Like yeah, I was say, well, just like, thinking about right, that. It's not that, that we have a God of the gaps. It's the science of the non-gaps. <laughs> right? Anything we can talk about, we call science. And anything we can't talk about, we say this is, this is a gap. Right? And in fact, just to show that it's not a one-way street, if you look at, for example, you mentioned ether. Right? So <laughs> we had, you know, you, you, you know what causes gravity, right? It's, it's, it's ether. Do we? Oh, okay. Historically, oh, historically right. okay, 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 we okay. say we know what causes gravity. It's ether, right? And we know what ether is. We can talk about it. It's, it's these corpuscles that go around and you've got these vortices in it and that's fine. So we can talk about it. So the, the source of gravity is science. Uh, or the, the source of gravity is a scientific topic. Mm. We say this, is, this ether rightly belongs in science. Right? And then later on you say, well, okay, I, I have an equation that says F equals GMM over R squared. Right? And you say, well, what's the mechanism for that? You say, well, you can't ask about the mechanism. We just know the behavior. It's, it's just the equation. Yeah. It's just the behavior. The mechanism for this is not a scientific question. Oh, shit. Right? Yeah. Now, it used to be a scientific question, and suddenly it stopped being because we weren't happy talking about it anymore. And then, oh, all of a sudden... Why did it stop? Because we weren't happy talking. Because, so when you, as you go through different theories... Doesn't this, doesn't this, like, sort of, like kill curiosity at some point and you become a very boring scientist very dull and dry um and i mean i would would a richard Feynman agree to that i mean right so this is okay, no. oh, okay this is this is a whole nother topic oh, okay. as to why it stops all oh, right that's that's <laughs> shall i just let you continue <laughs> surfing let's, that wave let's, let, let's bounce across this one for a bit and we'll come back to why okay. to curiosity and the role of curiosity in science we'll right. do that in a minute all right okay so but but you know, so, so if you look at, you know, with Newton, you know, what, what shape is space-time is not a question. It's not a question you can ask. Mm. And then all of a sudden, along comes Einstein. He says, it is a question you can ask. Mm. Right? So it's not, it's not that you have this, this sort of god of the gaps. It's that science does this wonderful trick that says, as long as I'm comfortable giving you an answer to that question, I shall tell you it's a proper question to ask. Mm-hmm. But as soon as my theory changes so that I don't know the answer, I'll tell you it's not a proper question. Okay. And, okay. and so, so, it's, so I, I would call this science of the non-gaps. Right. Um, right, yes. Where were we? Uh, so, okay, I'm, I'm just going to quickly... You set me up for this big thing and then I gave you a short answer and you wanted a long answer. So I'm just going to finally pick through that, that, that big setup you gave me. Good. A long time ago. Okay, so talking about deities, so this gets fun as well. Yeah. Um, in as much as are are gods supernatural? Dude, like I, I set up this earphone system so I would be able to hear things clearly. Can you please repeat that question? <laughs> I'm going to turn up the volume. <laughs> <laughs> No, I just you, heard him coughing there. You, you didn't. You didn't mishear it. I really asked the question: Are gods supernatural? Oh Jesus! 
Yeah, is he supernatural as well? <laughs> <laughs> because I accept that he's a god. Um, uh, my answer is more than one sentence. My answer is more than one sentence in the sense that, and I, w- I wanted to actually open up on this on the next question I was going to ask you. Um, I might as well open it up now. Um, so what's applicable to my own sort of life? It, we were talking about me-centric, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, decisions and sort of mental structures and constructs that I come up with essentially are, are so that I can stay alive. You know, I can continue living in this world healthy uh, and uh, as, as, as good as I can. Um, and if a god, if my paradigm of thinking uh, was brought up in a civilization or a society that had this sort of thing and I had, had developed the habitual behavior to refer to these, these entities and things, then it would be natural. It wouldn't be supernatural, I suppose. But now we discuss about it in this, pers- in this, in this perspective where I don't think that these entities or these so-called things have any sort of influence on me. Then I would say, yeah, okay, it's a, it's a supernatural thing. It's, a, it's something that I'm, yeah, yeah, of, of no relevance right. to me. And so, so this is... This is something where, again, where... Like, where uh, wait, 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 wait. Uh, I can go t- on to that further. Ah, shit. Uh, how do I do this? Um, but in the sense that, you know, you could also say that maybe those, those, those entities that you might refer to might epitify, epitify or uh, exemplify... Epitomize. Epitomize, that's the one. E- epitomize or exemplify or exempl- make an example of the best sort of character. So it would be an archetype kind of thing. Right. Okay. If we're going to go in that direction, then sure, it's not a real thing, but it is a successful strategy or behavior in life that if one does adopt or utilize and it is represented by this, this thing, then, then it's a real thing. So it's, it's some ideal that people have created in their minds as a mental construct to, to, towards which they can strive. For. Yeah, but, but, more so, but more so one can actually create, in times without internet, one can actually create these gods. Um, and and it, is, it, it, ha- it, it serves a single purpose of passing these knowledge and lessons that one has derived throughout generations. So, you know, stories by the fireside get created so that you're able to pass on successful um, 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 strategies that, 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 that you and your, your, depend, your, your generation thereafter don't go and kill yourselves because, you know, um, you know like if you don't do this, the young people will, mm-hmm. will, will rise up and burn down your village and everybody in the village dies kinds of things. Because, why? Because we had that uh, several generations ago. Right. Um, you so know, we, we now create this story, which which yeah. includes and therefore inculcates this teaching into future generations. Right. Yeah. When when that thing itself is forgotten, but we now pass this knowledge on. Yeah. yeah exactly. So it becomes a vessel, a mimetic vessel, to right. communicate uh, um, a, a evolutionary informa- evolutionary advin- information, like you yeah. know stuff that'll keep you alive. Memes. Memes, yeah. In, in the original... In the original sense, sense. yes. 
the memetic, the Richard Dawkins yes. uh, memetic uh, Dawkins, information. Um, right. So okay. So 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 that's that's a, a sort of anti-realistic picture of of, of gods. Uh, okay. Uh, so by by so it, it terminology here. So when I talk about realistic and anti-realistic in this context, okay. I say uh, that the anti-realistic side is is the one where it is some social discourse thing that we have constructed okay. that doesn't need to appeal to anything in the external world right. whereas a realistic one says we're actually appealing to something that really exists okay. um, and and I, I mean neither term disparagingly um, I'm, I'm very happy with, with anti-realistic theories about lots of things um, and and but so, so here you've got you've got a, 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 an anti-realistic picture of gods where you say okay, gods are these social constructions which serve very useful purposes of passing this information on this is very much a Neil Gaiman kind of thing, you know, like. <laughs> yeah. And so, so now what you, what you then get is you, is, so if you take, let's take, um, so I'm now going to appeal to someone like C.S. Lewis. So right. C.S. Lewis, Christian writer. Yeah. Um, but he was very comfortable with, not with the existence, the real existence of non-christian deities okay um so so for example so if, if you look in for example the chronicles of narnia yeah um the characters include nymphs and dryads yeah. and pan and bacchus turns up yeah right so so he was and and you know aslan sends bacchus off to go and do do whatever task so so he has so, so lewis has this notion of of divinities as as genuine real creatures, as the yeah. spirits of trees being real things, uh, and so so you know, a lot of Christians now would say, okay, well maybe I believe that I have a soul, but but I don't believe in Christianity. It's okay to accept that trees have a soul or that rocks have a soul. Whereas so now, to try and having said that the natural supernatural dichotomy is not a helpful one, to to come to one within Christianity, which is actually than the one that, that Christianity traditionally would have used, hmm. is to say the distinction it draws is not between natural and supernatural. It's between created and creator. So you then say, if I have a rock, that is a created object. If I have a demon, that is a created object. Now, you know, the modern natural supernatural would say, clearly demons are supernatural. Until we mm. find words in which to describe them, which go, oh yeah, okay, we we uh, we're comfortable talking about those. We're going to call them natural. Okay. So, <laughs> so so you know, within Christianity, a, a rock is a created thing. A demon is a created thing. A dryad, if they exist, is a created thing. An animal is a created thing. And then the one that's different is God, who is the creator. Mm. But but smaller divinities, um, if they exist would be created beings and there's nothing within a christian religious framework that says that wouldn't be the case and if you look historically particularly the further back you go into into jewish thinking uh, the, yeah. the notion that you had these other lesser deities well then wouldn't you say sorry wouldn't is, you say is, the big bang is, big the big bang is god then no no <laughs> why not <laughs> if it's all if it's all originated from the big bang that's the original Right. So, so the, 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 the classification I had before okay. was to say the two, the two things you have are creator and created. 
Oh. And the Big Bang is not the creator. The Big Bang is created. Okay, it so might then be the first moment of the universe, but it, it isn't. Yeah, so you're it, only looking at one. Isn't creative. Yeah, so you're only looking at one sort of step of of creation, right? Okay, like let's just sort of just our our viewpoint is only like between creator and created. Now, you know, I weave this this handkerchief, and now I am its creator, essentially, right? So, Ooh, as an analogy, I'm going to accept that, but if. If the analogy gets pushed too far, I'm gonna come back to it. Go for it. <laughs> you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna slap it around, and that's that's fine. Um, but I might create this handkerchief, and it lasts for a hundred million years, such that everything that ever comes in contact with it completely loses all context that that surrounds that, and do, indeed, the creator might itself pass away but this thing persists um, and then some sort of random story gets formed up around it do you see what I mean mm-hmm. um, essentially what I'm trying to say is that yeah there's a long chain of events and everything just like just like the the the, um, the, the life the evolution of life you can see the whole tree of evolution it all originates from one thing um, I, am I not this this thing's God so there's there's a there's a the creator. I'm I'm going to take a, a slight detour into a, into a joke if I if I may. Oh. There was there was a, a, a biologist who uh, who having you know worked very hard on on genetics and so on and so forth had, had worked out how to create life in the lab. Mm. And so they uh, they they rocked up to God and they went, okay, God, you reckon you're so good because you can create life. Uh, yeah. Well, I can do it too. So rematch. Okay, I'm going to show you that I can create life and then I'm going to become God. Yeah. God said, fair enough. Because, you know, he's kind of a chill guy. So God says, fair enough. And uh, so this bar just says, okay, here we go. Just just like you, okay, from the dirt, I can just take a handful of dirt and I can create a living being. Mm. So the, the, the bar just takes some dirt and God says, hang on, hang on. Use your own dirt. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> yeah, I see. You, in manufacturing that handkerchief, have right. not created that handkerchief. You have just taken pre-existing stuff and made something else out of it. Uh, I, yeah, okay, I, I hear what you're saying, but that's why I refer to the Big Bang as the original creator, because um, you can read... Was it Sam Harris's book? Where he says everything from nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he goes about documenting each of the steps, like you know, you can from the Big Bang. There's there's nothing. Maybe there's like, uh, and and from literally nothing, like you know, these I suppose quantum fluctuations happen, and then maybe little things of 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 hydrogen start to form, and then they sort of coalesce, and and then they sort of collapse, and maybe gravity starts to form, and stars start to form, and then you get your supernovas which generate all sorts of things and and it it's it describes the entire process of the creation of life and going back to that one example of a biologist i believe that so on the under the assumption that you you've already gone through all of these things and you've created this little this world with 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 them consisting of the most two most common elements which is hydrogen and and oxygen which form to create water they they managed to recreate a similar sort of environment which would uh, um, sort of spark life 
the the initial conditions that are required for 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 life to sort of you know uh, under the hypothesis that that life was formed underneath the the warm um, self event at the bottom of the ocean kind of thing. Anyway, um, yeah, we, we we might be going a little bit too much into the creator create uh, creator uh, thingy, and I, I think we might be getting a bit lost at the moment. And I should probably just. <laughs> and let you keep rolling. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, so just to, just to just to wrap that up. I, so the, the reason I went into that was not to try and get into origins. Uh, because, oh, okay. Because there's there's it's enough to be said in origins. But but the, the distinction there to, to draw was was between rather than saying between natural and supernatural. Yeah. To say between creator and created. Okay. But that then so, and the reason I brought that up was to come back to your question about about uh, samurai and so on and so forth. Oh, that okay. have this much more holistic view of of <sighs> the world. And to say that, for example, you know, even if we have souls and spirits and, and so on and so forth, um, they they would not, you know, they might be supernatural because science isn't yet comfortable talking about them. Mm. But within within the, the sort of a, a, a Christian ontological framework, they would they would simply come under created beings, and we're okay with that. Okay. Um, so so the, yes, that was that was why I was going in that direction. Okay, but the, we remember that. The plowed field, and I gave you a. Uh, is have you concluded that? Yeah, we're done with that. I think we've we've covered that. All right. Damn it! I would normally be thinking about other questions now, and sort of sort of driving into this. Um, yeah, I got sidetracked uh, by by this, and I wanted to ask. So going back to this is an art thing. This is an art thing. Can one can one create? Uh, can one create a sort of a, a, a way of looking at things such that? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Now we're going. Okay. So in in the situation with with with, with religion, um, you mentioned in the Bible uh, or in religious contests, they are spe they are actually making is statements. The scientific method, the scientific body, had not sort of been arrived at at, at that point, and. Would that have been a rudimentary um, um, framework that individuals would have used to be able to um, uh, rationalize or uh, see the world around them, to reason the world around them? Yeah. I mean, are you not comparing an outdated, uh, rough um, methodology to a modern, evolved Methodology. Do you see what I mean? Yes. So, so there's there's this thing called the myth of progress. Okay. Um. And so I, I would I would not refer to what did happen six thousand years ago as a as a rough outmoded methodology, and I don't think I'd refer to what we do now as whatever it was a, a more polished methodology. Okay. Um. We, we, there's a, there's a, we, oh, shall I try that again? Go for I'm it. I'm going to put words in the sentence. You ready? <laughs> <laughs> there's a wonderful lie that we tell ourselves. Yeah. That says we're actually getting somewhere. Okay. Um, Are we just biting our tails? Maybe. So I'll, I'll give an example as to, as to why we tell this lie. Uh -huh. And science textbooks are awesome at telling this lie, but they tell it for a reason. They tell it for a very good reason. 
well, very funding. Close. No, surprisingly, textbooks don't do it for funding. Textbooks do it for educational purposes. Oh, to uh, motivate the student. If, if you could lie to your students for educational purposes, that makes it okay. So here you go. So, so if you look at what science does, I mean, science is a mess. Um, science is, is a hideous mess. I mean, if, uh, taking, you know, go back to my own personal experience with Dreck effect. Right? My, my, my research is going to be, a, when, when the history of quantum computers is writ, right, my research is not going to be in it because, because mine was looking at 10 different ways of, of why things didn't work. Now, now if, you, if you go off and you go, okay, we're going to try this, and it didn't work, and we're going to try this, and it didn't work, right? And, and so you have all these weird random bushes as to what didn't work. Now, when you're writing a textbook, right, the purpose of a textbook is not to get kids to understand that the whole thing is a terrible mess. The purpose of a textbook is to get kids to understand what we currently think is the case. Yeah. Right? And, and if, you, if you, you know, if... if, if if you can sum up in half a page what we currently think the case is, then a 30-page history that goes down every blind alley is just going to confuse them. That would be a bad textbook. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what you do is you say, right, okay, well, here's where we are now, and here's where we used to be. And if I draw a line between here and here, then there's this person, this person, this person, this person, this person, right? So we can tell people the progression of science. And so we write this history, and it's it's a mnemonic as much as anything. It's it's a it's a it's a pedagogical tool mm. to help kids remember. Okay, if we can kind of remember that how we got to here, then that helps us put some context in it, and and helps us to remember this. Um, but for teaching purposes, to help you remember this, it doesn't matter if any of this is true. Mm. So, for example, um, Michelson Morley experiment. Uh, now, Michelson Morley experiment was famous. We're getting back to ether again. It's, it's famous because because there was this idea that. that Please explain had. what it is. Okay, wonderful. Uh, so there was this idea that, that you had ether, and there should be an ether wind, mm. and so Michelson and Morley set out to measure the ether wind, and uh, using using an interferometer, uh, and they they could not measure it. There there, there was zero ether wind. Don't you need a laser for an interferometer? Uh, no, you can. You can. You need to be smart if you don't have a laser, but you can do. How it the hell do you create an interferometer without a laser? You, you can do a white light interferometer. Oh shit! Yes, you can. Good yes, grief! Yes, you can. Wow. I mean, lasers were 1962. Shit. Interferometers been going for a very long time. Fascinating. There you go. So, so they 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 set up this uh, they set up this interferometer and they managed to to show, so the story goes, they managed to show there was no ether wind, and they say they managed to show that there's no such thing as the ether, and they managed to show then that, that you know, relativity is true. Yeah. And, and that's great, and, and we all read this story in all the textbooks. Okay. And um, the, the nice thing is, just out of interest, have you ever read Mixon and Morley's original paper? No. Because no. it, it contains, I think most people write the textbooks that have never read it either. Uh, I, I, and, and I know that because Mixon and Morley's original paper said, uh, in their conclusion, we have hereby demonstrated that the ether exists. Is this not the case of, of, of uh, Aboriginal tribes passing the stories down the line? Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so maybe some story details got missed. Uh. So, right, but so, but th there's a reason why they, they misinterpret the story. So it was, it was they, they, they skew the story because they, they want the students to understand this idea, mm. not the truth of how we got to this idea. Um, 
In fact, I mean, there's, there's a wonderful paper by Einstein he wrote in 1921, uh, where, you know, again, you, you look at the history, and the history, people always say, well, you know, uh, Maxwell demonstrated with his equations that you don't need ether, mm. uh, and then Einstein managed to demonstrate with relativity that you don't need ether, and Michelson and Morley gave the experimental demonstration that there is no ether. And this is all pointing to no ether. Which is great, except that um, Maxwell wrote in Encyclopaedia Britannica several years after he developed his, uh, his wave equations, he developed his wave equations using, using an ether theory. Uh, they, were, they were actually ether equations. Um, Mixon and Morley uh, gave an experimental demonstration, so they claimed at the time that they had demonstrated the ether did exist and proposed further experiments to characterize the ether. And Einstein in 1921 wrote this paper claiming that he'd been concerned about special relativity because special relativity is not an ether theory but he was now very glad with general relativity because general relativity is an ether theory and therefore he had managed to save the ether now that story never gets told in the textbooks because what we want to explain is we want to explain some story some folklore myth have call it what you will to help people remember how we got to here Mm. Um, there was a reason for me going down this rabbit trail. I'm just trying to think what it was. What was the question? Oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> uh, um, um, we would, uh, we were ref we were talking about um, the is ought thing. Uh, the um, the rudimentary oh the, the oh right okay progress yeah. progress progress yeah. yeah sorry I should I should get a pen and just take notes just to remind myself that's the I next thing I need to do now that I've got the the earphones I need uh, these notepads yeah Pad, just just to make notes of one I need to Dude, say yeah progress yeah. right so we the textbooks give us this story of progress in science yeah and and it's simply it's simply not true mm. and they tell us the story for a very good reason but it's a pedagogical reason so that students understand what science now believes hmm. and and which is one of the reasons why why textbooks on the history of science are so radically different from textbooks on science because one wants to teach you about science and the other one wants to teach you about history mm -hmm. um, i was i was teaching this to some students in in uh, in innsbruck uh, and so i i was telling the story about about the ether and they they, they were horrified absolutely horrified and so they went to their lecturer, their, their relativity lecturer, who they just had this course and they'd just been told this story. And they went to their lecturer and they said, did you know this story isn't true? And they came back to me the following week and they were once again utterly horrified. They said, we told our lecturer that it wasn't true. I said, you uh -huh. shouldn't have done that. <laughs> no, he said, I said, what did he say? I said, he didn't care. He said, he knows it's not true, but he doesn't tell the story because it's true. He tells the story because it's helpful. So, so some scientists unknowingly repeat these lies of progress, and some scientists knowingly repeat these lies of progress. Um, but you know, if, if you look, so that the, the, the progress, uh, if, if you want to summarise it through the history of physics, um, within you know under under uh, Newton managed to show that the three-body problem wasn't solvable. Einstein managed to show that the two-body problem wasn't solvable. Quantum mechanics managed to show that the one-body problem wasn't solvable. Go into each of these different problems, and if you could. 
QCD what, what managed it? to show that the vacuum isn't solvable. Oh, God. And we call this progress. Oh. <laughs> I mean, science doesn't make progress. Hmm. It, um, it understands okay, um, something, though. Okay. Does so, it not? I'm, I'm and gonna, then documents it, puts mm, it into the... Okay, so, so here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slightly draw, draw a nuance to that. Science does make progress, but it makes a very specific kind of progress. So it, it, makes, it makes mobile phone-shaped progress. I was going to... Well, what do you mean by that? <laughs> I was, was going to say that. No, I was no, going no, right. to no, say, well, planes are flying. Right. And, and, and we're recording this and broadcasting to... Yes. But. Yes. But. Okay, so we're, we're now on step two of the reach and the final goal of saying, I don't know what words mean anymore. Okay. <laughs> so, progress. What do we mean by progress? Because there are two different kinds of progress that, that science... One that science does make and one that science doesn't make. And we need to draw a distinction between them. And so, I mean, there's, there's Richard Dawkins famously uh, gave this, this lecture where, where, you know, someone in the, in the Q&A afterwards, someone said, you know, asked this question. He said, well, well how, you know, how can you show that science is true? And he said, well, it, it works. Yes, that's right. Planes fly, computers compute. Yeah. If you want to, you know, give someone medicine, you give them the medicine that science made if you if you yeah. uh, if you want to get them better if you want to use a phone use the phone that science made it works bitches that's um, the one that's the one it's a brilliant quote um and each of the examples he used is a very specific kind of progress so i'm, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna draw lots of long words coming out this evening here i'm gonna need more tea Okay, so, so two distinct words that we have. One... Shall we do the tea now? If we can do a break and have another cup of tea, that would be awesome. Uh, I'm not going to edit out anything. I'm just going to go fill up cups quick. Okay, well... Awesome. Oh, all right. I will edit this one now. Okay, and... Yeah, we'll... we'll okay, we're back. Okay, um, wonderful. You've got your tea. You've got your paper and a yes, pen. And, and uh, I have already... Okay, so, so th there's, two, there's two kinds of ways in which science could make progress. Mm. Could. And there's one of these ways in which it does make progress, and there's one of these ways in which it doesn't make progress. Mm. So, um, with respect to what I observe, things that I can actually poke and prod, um, science really does make progress, right? If, if you want to, you know, if, if you want to get a plane, and, and I mean, in times of less covid right but you know if, if, if you get on a plane in hong kong and and someone has calculated they say okay we're going to use this much jet fuel to get you to berlin right then you know they, they get you to berlin and, and you use the plane that science built right you'd be crazy to do anything else um and if you if you want you know if you if you want to get better then then the drugs that that, that biomedicine built are probably a pretty good option um and, and, and obviously, I mean, phones are the, the, the canonical example, right? I mean, phones are great. And, and you would never, in all the years of just sort of sitting down and throwing monkey bones in the air, have come up with the transistor, let alone a mobile phone. Yeah, that's what all the, the 1920s predictions of the future got wrong, which was the mobile <laughs> phone and the telecommunications and all that. Right. They all got it wrong. They didn't predict it. <laughs> yes, and all the predictions of two years ago, the thing they got wrong was was the entire world would shut down. Oh yeah. Yes. How I met. Oh your come on, pandemics. Uh, pandemic. Uh, they they know about. This, uh, right. Know. Okay. I mean, yes. Pandagen, uh, contagion. That was that was a documentary. But like, how I met your mother. Right. 
He didn't Jesus, mention I it. I thought you were referring to my real no, mother. No, not your no, you have mother. not met my mother. I've, I've never <laughs> met your mother. But, but the, 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 the TZ, TV series, How I Met Your Mother, right? He's telling the kids the backstory of like the last however many years, and he never once mentioned that 2020 was a oh. was a dumpster fire. I mean, why would you not mention that to your kids in reviewing history? Anyway, <laughs> um, I don't think How I Met Your Mother is really a true story. Let's get back on topic. Um, right. So here we go. Phones. Yeah. Phones. Here we go. Science. Does it work? Science. Does how, it does work? It, how does it advance? Right. So, and, and I mean, yeah, this XKCD uh, also has got this wonderful, wonderful cartoon with, with yeah. the background microwave radiation, which again, yeah. science, it works, bitches, where, you know, you, you want to predict what, what the background radiation should be. And it's brilliant. And it, it's just spot on. Love yeah. it. Yeah. But... So, so what that is doing, that's all asking the question, what will I see? What science is really, really good at is asking the question, will my detector go ping? Right? If, if, I, if, I, if I set up some experiment and I put the detector there, what I want to know is, will it go ping? Yeah. And, and it's really good at that. Or, you know, will my voltmeter say 17 volts? So really good at that. And so these are called phenomenological results. These are looking at the phenomena that are actually impinging themselves on my senses. Mm. So for example, I build CERN and I want to know whether my detector goes ping. Mm. Because at CERN, you never see the Higgs boson at CERN. With apologies yeah. to, 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 um, to, to particle physicists, no particle physicist has ever seen the Higgs boson. What they've seen is a detector that goes ping. Mm. And we get really very good at predicting what we will see. If, you know, if, if, I, if I set up my laser, I can set up my laser and, you know, it was a bit waffly before and I can narrow the line width and I can get better and better at, at what my laser, what, what I will see with my laser. Um, or I build a quantum computer and I can, you know, these, these are phenomenological things. Now there's an, and, and all the examples that Dawkins uses are of this type, right? If you want to get a rocket yeah. to Mars, right? That's a, a, a macroscopic object that you see with your eyes and you fly there. Yeah. Medicine, a person dies or they don't die. This is a macroscopic thing that we're seeing. Computers compute. You see the result that says the answer is 17, right? These are all macroscopic phenomenological things. And science makes progress on those. We get better at answering the question, what will I see? Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you want to position the planets, we, we get really good at saying exactly where Mars is going to be. Yeah. Right? But if you look at, if you look for progress in asking what is actually happening, well, then we're very bad at that. We're spectacularly bad at that. So, for example, uh, let's, let's return to Ether. So <laughs> just, just predicting a software project. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, when is it going to be done? Um, yeah, three months from now. <laughs> when is my computer going to go bing? No. But so if you look at what's actually happening under the hood, so to speak. Yeah. So let's, let's return to Ether. Um, now, historically, okay, so we said there's, there's this Ether, which you have Ether vortices. And so gravity is caused by vortices in the Ether. And the reason why, gra why, why planets go around in circles is because they're caught in these vortices of Ether, which is dense. And, and fluid and going around. And then Newton came along and said, no, 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 no. 
there is an ether wind, but it's it's not it's not a vortex going round. It's streaming from one object to another, and it's 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 rarefied and corpuscular. So the previous answer could tell you roughly where Mars was going to be. Mm. And Newton got better at telling you where Mars was going to be. So in that sense, we've made progress on a phenomenological what am I going to see level. Okay. Right. But on an underneath the hood, what is the universe doing level, we've gone from ether going around in circles to ether going in straight lines perpendicular to the previous circles. Right. Have we made progress or have we just completely changed the model? Discuss. Okay. So then you come along and you go, okay, well, um, relativity tells us actually it's Einstein would have disagreed because he thought he had an ether theory but never mind so <laughs> relativity says we've, we've got this curved space time yeah right and and it's not because of ether vortices and it's not because of, of of an ether wind it's because we're following these paths on this curved space time yeah. now this is not converging right the answer where will Mars be that's converging. We're getting really, really good at saying exactly where we think it's going to be. And we can look at the perihelion of Mercury and we get better at predicting what we're going to see through our telescope. But we're hopping all over the map in terms of what's going on under the hood. And then, you know, particle physicists say, well, you know, we've got gravitons. You know, hang on. Is it, is it gravitons or is it curved space-time? Right? Now, you have these two utterly different theories which are you know that they, they they walk side by side and scientists don't care i mean they care a bit but it doesn't keep them awake at night yeah. some but most don't right that, that on the one hand you say okay gravity is happening because of gravitons and particles and on the other one it's not it's happening because of curved space time right and and we're really good at saying where is mars going to be but we have no idea what is going on under the hood mm. um and and you know i picked the example of ether but this this happens across the board. Uh, I mean, another example which I, I find beautiful is um, if you look at particle-antiparticle pair creation. Right. Okay. Uh, before I get there, I'm gonna I'm gonna hop back. I'm gonna take phones. Okay. We'll we'll work up to this from phones. Write down particle-antiparticle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I should actually have a piece of paper too. Okay. So we're gonna start with phones. Right yeah. now. With with when you when you've got a, a semiconductor right, so we've got this doped semiconductor. And we've got we've got um, for those of your viewers who aren't up on their solid state physics and, and how transistors work, right? So what you've got is is in a in a normal crystal, you've got this this lattice of of uh, atoms that, that sit in this nice nice neat lattice, yeah. and you've got these electrons that flow around. We're all good and happy. And if I put if I put a, a, an electric field across this, my electrons flow. Mm -hmm. And so I put the electric field across my electrons flow this way, and that's fine. And I can keep track of where my electrons are. And it's flowing with my thing. Now, if I take one of those electrons out, okay, so I have a hole where I'm expecting an electron to be. Now imagine if, you, if you've got an analogy. If I, if I have a queue of people, right? yeah. if all of the people go this way, then I have a flow of people going that way. Right? Yeah. But if I take one of the people out, then one person moves along, and the next person moves along, and the next person moves along, and the next person moves along. Right now, what's actually happened is twenty people have moved one place that way. Yeah. But what it looks like is one gap where a person isn't has moved twenty spaces that way. Right. Now we know that what's really happened is twenty people have each moved one space this way along the queue. But 
if we look at the maths and we say, you know, the maths is easier to say we have one, one gap and the gap has moved that way because then I have to deal with one thing, not 20 things. So we do this with, we do this with, um, with solid state physics. We say, right, if I take one of these electrons out, so I have this gap, right? Now, if my electron hops into that hole and this one hops in there and this one hops in there, this one hops in there, then rather than keeping track of a, of a million electrons going this way, I keep track of a hole going this way. Now, I know that this hole isn't a real thing, right? It's just a gap where the electron isn't. And I'm okay with that. This is, so I say, right, this is what's really going on. What's really going on is the electrons go this way, but I can pretend that the hole is going this way. And I can assign to this hole properties. I can say this hole has an effective mass. Yeah. I can say this hole has an effective charge because I apply an electric field to it and my hole moves that way. Yeah. So I know what the effective charge of my hole is. Even mm. though there's nothing there, it's not a thing. Right, fine. So that's solid state. Now, if you have when, when, so Pali exclusion principle says you can't put two electrons into the same state at once. Yeah. Right. Now, and you also say, right, my, my particles, we're getting into heavy physics here. I'm sorry. I hope Good, no, up, but, no, but uh, just okay you let rip. You okay. let rip. So, so if, if, I, if I take a pen and I drop it, right, yeah. it, it comes to the lowest available energy state. Why doesn't it go through the table? We're going to get there in a second. Okay. Right. So my, my pen goes to the lowest energy state. Right. Right. So if I have here zero energy and I have an excited particle here, right, it will mm -hmm. decay down to zero energy. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, that's great, except if it equals mc squared, then you've got a positive and a negative root to this, mm. which means that you have from zero, you've got an infinite amount of energy going up, but you also have an infinite hole going down, mm -hmm. as in an infinite. Mm -hmm. Right. There's, 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 mm -hmm. This is space as well. I can have this negative energy. So that's as if my pen starts here and it falls. Well, that's not the lowest energy state. The lowest energy state is infinitely far down. Mm -hmm. And, well, that's a problem because if I, if I drop my pen from here to here, then it, when it hits the table, it makes a sound. And that sound gives out the energy that it had from falling. Right. right. And, and so that's fine. It has this much energy and it gives out that much energy and that's fine. But if it then falls from here down an infinitely deep hole it emits an infinite amount of energy while it's falling yeah right now so that says basically if i have one electron in the universe and that electron tries to find its lowest possible state it will fall into this infinite negative state emit an infinite amount of energy so one electron has sufficient energy to blow up the entire universe and if we're ready to do some experimental physics because i said i was an experimentalist okay here's what we do quick experiment coming up this pen contains at least one electron. We're going to observe this pen for a whole second and see if it destroys the universe. No. Right. So <laughs> we've managed to experimentally show that this theory is not quite right. <laughs> this, this, you never knew you were going to do experimental physics this evening, did you? Fascinating. Fascinating. Absolutely So we can masterful. show there's something wrong here. So now here's what, here's what Pauli did. So he said, he said um, well, well, let's just imagine that all of these states are full. They're full of electrons. Yeah. Right. Well, how many states are there? Well, it's an infinitely deep hole that I, I fill with an infinite number of electrons. Okay. So I have an infinite number of electrons. Yeah. Uh, but of course, it, the, the, the vacuum. So the vacuum consists of an infinite number of electrons filling this infinitely deep hole. Mm -hmm. As well, that that then means that we've got this. The, why isn't the vacuum infinitely charged? He says, well, there's this background charge that cancels it out, which has an infinite charge density. Okay. 
So we have a, 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 the background universe has an infinite charge density, which is cancelled out by an infinite number of electrons filling an infinitely deep hole, which is the only thing that stops my pen from destroying the universe. Now, it starts to sound like a bit of a cuckoo theory, but here we go. So, but it's not crazy science because it leads to a prediction. Now, go back to my phone. If I have, if I have my, my, my material and I excite an electron from here to here, mm -hmm. then I go from this material that has nothing interesting going on to I've got an electron here and I've got a hole here. Mm -hmm. And I can make my electron move this way and I can make my hole move this way. Right? And if I have a hole and an electron here, they can recombine to be neutral. So I said, okay, well, this, the same could happen, right? If I've got, here's my vacuum, and it's got all these electrons here, I could excite an electron out of this vacuum mm -hmm. up into real space, and then I'd have an electron here, which just appeared apparently out of nothing, and a hole here. So I've got, I've got electron hole creation, just like you have in a, in a, in a semiconductor. Yeah. Excite an electron, I've got a hole here. So he made this prediction. He says, you, should, you, can, you can fire a photon into the vacuum and you can create an electron and a hole. And it actually happened. In this infinitely deep Fermi C. Yeah. And they did that and it actually happened. Now, this looks like experimental proof of infinitely many electrons in an infinitely deep hole with an infinitely dense no, charge. No, it's background. describing something else, isn't it? Okay, so now. Okay. So what he's managed to do is he's managed to say, I know when my detector will go ping. Right? He's made a prediction, and what he is able to do is he can say, my detector went ping. Good. Hmm. Now we have the, we've made progress. But now I have the question, what's actually going on? <laughs> because the idea of an infinitely deep sea of, of infinitely many electrons is uncomfortable. That sounds we totally poppycock. Right. <laughs> so here's what he did. Here's what he did. He said, I'm going to do a mathematical transformation. I'm going to take the entire theory, I'm going to take all of the maths, and I'm just going to do a transform so that it's the same basic idea, it just looks different in the maths. Okay. But it's formally identical. So what you have is you have, and because the maths is identical, you say, okay, well, if this maths is correct, then anything which this theory predicts, this theory will also predict. Mm. We might interpret it differently, but they will always give exactly the same answer to the question, will my detector go ping? because they're mathematically identical. So he, he did this transform and he said, right, it's not that we've got an infinite deep sea of electrons and, and we excite an electron, we have now a hole. This electron, I've now created an electron, not excited a pre-existing electron. Mm -hmm. And this hole, I'm going to call that a positron. It's an anti-electron. Okay. Right? So matter-antimatter pair creation is mathematically identical to... This infinite... An infinitely deep firm, you see. Right. Right. Now, between writing his original paper and picking up his Nobel Prize, <laughs> he, he, he rewrote the maths. Okay. And in his, in, his, in his, you know, Nobel Prize acceptance speech, he says, now, for those of you who are really uncomfortable with this idea that we can just create matter out of nothing, it's okay. Just imagine it's like an infinitely deep firm, you see, of all the electrons. So he himself, in his Nobel Prize speech, said, it's just the same as this mathematically they're the same thing so we've made progress in will my detector go ping we've made a prediction but we have no idea if the universe is really matter antimatter 
or an infinitely deep sea of Fermi electrons. Hmm. Now, just just to, to completely go off on one, just to show how disconcerting this can get. Okay, sign change. Um, w there, there is a question which, which puzzles physicists, which is to say, why is, why do we, where is the antimatter? Why is the universe mainly made of matter, not antimatter? Fair question. A and there are theories, but, but, but it's not yet clear. Now, let's imagine for just a second, because, because, because we can, because the maths of a universe that is able to produce antimatter is the same as the maths of a universe that has this infinitely deep antimatter C. Mm -hmm. right. Now, I am made of electrons and protons and neutrons and normal matter. Now, define normal matter. Not holes in this okay, negative right, energy. Okay, scene, okay, okay. Right? Okay. So I'm made of, I don't know if my hand here, if any of these waves are on uh, the camera. Yeah, go up, go up, stop. Okay, there yeah, you go. So yeah, now yeah. I know how high I can wave. Yeah. Okay, so, so I'm made of, of electrons and protons and neutrons and, and hmm. normal matter. And what would happen if instead of saying actually we've got normal matter and then antimatter is just a hole in this Fermi C. What would happen if actually what we call antimatter is the real stuff and what we call normal matter is a hole in an antimatter Fermi C. Oh, I see. Right? Which means everything that I think I am made of is not real matter, but it's a hole in an antimatter C. And the answer is mathematically the two theories will be identical it's just a sign change and we have no way of working out the difference between those two theories because both theories because it's just a sign change they would make identical predictions so we make progress with respect to the question will my detector go ping we don't get close to making progress with respect to answering the questions what is the universe actually doing are we at the point now where what is words <laughs> we get, are we getting close you tell me <laughs> so, right, so, so, so this is this much is to say science makes progress in as much as yes planes fly yeah but you cannot extend that to say, therefore, science is really getting at these deep fundamental truths of the universe. We're getting really good at telling ourselves stories that make things make sense. Yeah. But telling ourselves stories that, that we can get a handle on and make things make sense is a very long way away from saying we're making progress in grasping what the universe is doing. So going back to your original question of was that a rough hash theory and now we're at a more refined theory, I'm like, yeah. mm, that has implicit in it the notion that we are making progress. Mm -hmm. And it's not clear to me that we are. So I'll give a, a, just, just one more example as to, as to ways in which we're not making progress, coming way back to, to the question that you had earlier, that we, we or the comment that you made earlier. Um, which was that? Which was that people jump off buildings. All right. Um, which is to say, you know, capitalism is, is very good at doing certain things. You know, if, if you want, if you want more money to be flowing around the world then capitalism is very good at that 
Now, I had a discussion in the previous endeavor I had with, with Professor Ming-Ming Chu. He introduced me to a very interesting insight, and I think I'll bring it up now, whereby capitalism essentially allocates capital to effective people, and as a result, power is um, aggregated to a very small minority. Mm -hmm. But with this increased power, one needs to have... Um, the equivalent of a democracy or some s similar sort of si si system, where which would then mitigate the power of these individuals. Uh, uh, it's, it's actually a separate point that I'm, I'm just sort of elaborating on that. Keep yeah. going. What, what, what's your point on, on capitalism? So, so capitalism is, is great at, at, you know, if, if you want stuff and you want it now, yeah. you know, capitalism has allowed Jeff Bezos to become incredibly rich and that... He's effective at what he It's does. effective at that. And that has allowed me to be able to order next day delivery on Amazon Prime. Wow. Now, is that progress? Well, that's another question. Yeah, it is. Right. So, well, okay. So I was a, a wonderful quote from from uh, a colleague. We were having discussions about this is many many years ago now, before Amazon was the was the behemoth that it is now. Yeah. Um, but we we're talking about whether or not we bought uh, Christmas presents for people on Amazon in the mm -hmm. early days of Amazon. Mm -hmm. And some people said, no, I think you should go to the shop and, and pick it out because that's, you know, part of the, the giving of Christmas is, is actually the thought of going to the shop and selecting. And, it, you know, that's, that's you know, with Christmas, you have the relationship there that you're building and the gift giving is not simply a, an act. It's, it's, you know, thinking of the person and spending time on the person. Mm -hmm. And by, by just simplifying it and, and clicking it and saying, I'll take that one, you, you remove something of the humanity Mm -hmm. from the gift giving so said first person I, I don't shop on Amazon said second person I absolutely shop on Amazon for Christmas because then just with a single click they'll even wrap it for you send it to the person and you don't even have to talk to them <laughs> <laughs> now by a certain measure of progress we have made progress by another measure of progress like are we are we hanging on to our humanity no. we have arguably not progressed and so and so there are certain things that science does and technology does and you know this this technological society does where by some measures we are making progress mm -hmm. and by other measures we are not making progress and by other measures we are making marked regress and one of the big problems that that, that i i think exists is we don't even notice what we've lost. Um, I was talking to I was talking to someone um, at Hong Kong U, uh, a lecturer at Hong Kong U. I mean, you know, top university, pushing forward education, and they were a local, so they they you know aren't used to the fact that there are other places in the world where eleven-year-old kids don't jump off buildings, mm. and you know, I commented. I said, this is a problem. You know, the education system has a problem. This shouldn't be happening. Yeah, this is... And their response was... Just the way it if, is. If you're going to have an education system, you've got to push kids hard. It's just the price you pay for a good education system. And, you know, with, with you know, the ability, you know, permanent access to information, you can check your grades on your phone whenever you want. You know, lying in bed in the morning, you can wake up, the first thing you can do is check because your thing come back, right? Always on... Right. 
By some measures this is progress, but by others it is not. And often, because we're told that technological progress is, is the progress that we want, it blind the, 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 the progress that we make blinds us to what we've lost. Hmm. Um, which is a very long way of getting back to saying to saying your 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 assumption of progress through history I would problematize. Contest. Yes. I see. I see. Doing away with that sort of progress means well, might not mean, but introduces a world whereby I now have to deal, humanly deal with my child having polio. Or, um, uh, you understand what I'm getting at. Yes. So then, how, how does, I mean, in, in entire sections of strife and struggle have been removed as a result of the the sign this very niche sort of narrow scientific progress um and new forms of communication have opened up which allow us to um well for example the young the young daughter the 13 year old daughter who would be a creative individual now has an iphone and over a period of time, through Snapchat, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, this kid is now spending umpteen hours a day um, interacting with her her friends and whatnot um, on these on these psychologically these apps which are psychologically designed to be equivalent to crack cocaine. Right. Um, and 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 now you introduce new forms of strife and struggle which are designed specifically at the weaknesses of, of, of the, 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 the individuals at different stages of life. Um, d does this not, I mean, does this not, not necessarily r refer to the advances of science or technology, but instead stuff like greed? Um, can we not can we not start talking about that? Um, is this not now we can start to introduce the concepts of Buddhism and uh, attachment to things, uh, greed, anger, envy, benevolence, righteousness, wisdom? Do have 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 we not forgot have we forgotten about these sorts of things? How do we introduce them back into our society? Right. So so now. You know, right, right at the beginning where I said where I said you know you, you have these arguments that say you know with with science you know, all questions of, of ought and should and morality and and yeah. the character of a person had been bracketed out right and now by looking at technological quote-unquote progress right we suddenly find these questions are urgently pressed on us right so now we find out that when we're looking at science technology phones we, it is an existential need to start discussing these questions which previously we'd said that's religion and has nothing to do with science. Right. So, so I'm, I'm glad we've got here because this now gets to, to saying, you know, th this, this is kind of the research I'm looking at to say, right. yeah, it, it is a really important question. It's a, it's a worldwide, but for Hong Kong, 
also it is an existentially important question mm -hmm. um, so and I mean you raised a couple of points and, and I'll, I'll try and tick through them and I've, I've made a note of some of them with my, my wonderful pen and paper which you provided and we'll see if I remember all of them but here we go um, so th the first question is with respect to polio um, yeah. that's an important question and it, it's not to be lightly tossed aside uh, because because yes there are things where tech where particularly medical technology has bought things which would be very hard to say this is not beneficial yeah. um, now I'm going to give a couple of answers connected to this question of polio to try and to try and get a handle on that and how we should approach that question yeah. because you know I, I'm not going to turn around and say you know we should all be anti-vaxxers I'm not <laughs> I'm, no um, go get your kids vaccinated um, <laughs> yes go <laughs> so 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 I'm, I'm not going to be anti-vaxxer but but we to say to say vaccines are good and we should get people vaccinated is not to then say we should uncritically accept the entire medical industrial complex and all that goes with that. They're two different questions. So, um, so the first thing to note is that technology is, is not, as, as you kind of brought up yourself, technology is not the, the, um, the one-way street the be-all and end-all? No, the, 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 the one-way street of medical progress that is sometimes presented. So, for example, um, if, if we had not, you know, the, the, it's, the, the world is a global village, right? You can get from one side of the world to the other in, in 12 hours, 14 hours. Hang on, one side, no, 24 hours. I keep on remembering that Hong Kong and Europe are on the other side of the world. Okay, you can get, you can get from one side of the world to the other in 24 hours. And, and you couldn't do that a few short decades ago, which would have meant that if, let's say, 100 years ago, someone had eaten uncooked bat, Europe would never have known about it. Right. So while the advances of modern technology, advances of modern technology mean that your son will not suffer from polio, the advances of modern technology might mean that your son will suffer from COVID. So we can't simply say modern technology cured polio, therefore modern technology is good because technology giveth and technology taketh away. Uh, so, so that, you know, it is this double-edged sword. Um, so the next question then to, to, to look at is to say, okay, there are, technology is, and you say design, it's designed to hook us it's designed to be crack cocaine um you know sometimes when i when i have these conversations sometimes people say well your, your phone is it's it's just a thing a thing is neutral right it's not yeah. it's not ah. good or bad it's just how you use it if you use it by staring at it for 20 hours a day you're using it wrong <laughs> right and this is this is this is to misunderstand that someone sat and was paid a lot of money to design it in a way that hooks you in. Mm. Your phone wants your eyeballs. Mm. If your phone, you know, every minute that you're not looking at your phone is a minute that your phone has failed. Um, and, and for that reason, 
or the designers of those applications that that wrote the app you know right. on the phone not specifically the phone because now you make it sound like it's an inert object that's uh <laughs> okay that's that's a whole other discussion which which we don't need to get into right now uh but but yes yeah, so the, the designers have failed and yeah. and let me say okay so i'm not going to let the phone off the hook completely Fine. in as much as saying a, a designer who who wants to who wants to to you know just 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 get you to to abandon all relationships just so you sit on your own in the corner right that designer has very little power over you until he has a phone right the 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 f- right once he puts sure right, it's not it's that like the phone is right right it, well no, no it's it's not that the phone is a a a, a, a an uninvolved bystander in this the situation that doesn't have the phone where you've got where you've got a megalomaniacal designer and a human being right those well nothing interesting happens the human being goes about their life right it's the phone it's the physical object that that person can put into your hand which which provides the conduit for their advertising Mm. clause Mm. So, so I'm not going to let the phone off completely because we, you know, then we get this sort of, you know, disembodied world where, where it's, you know, it's between us and and Mark Zuckerberg, but it's not. Yeah. Right? The, f- the the physical technology, which embodies the values that have been designed into it, mm-hmm. right? If if Mark Zuckerberg died, right, Facebook would still be there harvesting your data, yeah. right? It takes on this existence beyond the designers. Um, so so yes so I'm not going to let the phone off completely fine fair uh, right so, so but, but however you choose to frame it so the phone has been designed to hook you yes and there are technologies come with their own with their own values they come with their own value system so for example um, right, technology is it, it likes making things efficient it likes standardizing things right if if i'm going to make you if i'm going to hand carve you four chairs all of those chairs are going to be different right technology comes along and says hang on we can we can make this faster i can make chairs faster than you by having a big machine that just churns out chairs but all the chairs are going to be the same so technology with once it has speed it speeds things up uh but it also then standardizes things and so, so this, this, you know, so the, and so when someone comes in to say, you know, I want a different phone, you go, I'm sorry, you can't have a different phone. You can have this phone or that phone. Right? You can't suit it to your own personal desires. I mean, okay, so sometimes you can, but but they are they are not individual items. You know, when you want a car, you know, you, if you go and build your own car, it takes you forever. It's inefficient. It's ineffective. You just go out. You buy yourself a car. You take it off the peg and it's the standard one. So technology has this sort of standardization, efficiency, speed, all of these things, these values get rolled into it. And all of these things are inhumane values. So for example, um, if I'm having an argument with my wife and I'm thinking, okay, what is the fastest way to finish this argument? I know at least one reason why I need to be having an argument with my wife, or why my wife needs to be arguing with me, <laughs> namely that I'm trying to get out of this argument as quickly as possible. <laughs> right? 
I'm not. You don't. You don't have an argument to efficiently <laughs> get out. Of get her to be quiet and go away. Right. <laughs> many men might disagree. <laughs> right, and that's why many men have relationship problems. Yeah. <laughs> Podcast two. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Mike answers your relationship questions. So here we go. So, so you, you have this, this thing where, you know, efficiency is, is n as soon as, you know, when I'm trying to raise my kids, right, I go out and I hike up a mountain with them and I spend time with them. I'm not asking the question, okay, my kids need to know they're loved. What's the most efficient way to convey that? Right? I love you. And then that's it. <laughs> Quite. If I can do it in three minutes, I don't know. Three seconds, I don't know why I bothered to take Good an job. entire afternoon to go out and help you fix your bike. Right. So, relational things are not efficient. Yeah. Right? Relational things are not standardized. Yeah. I go, you know, I say to my son, you know, let's, let's, whatever, go and fix a bike together. And I say to my daughter, let's go and fix a bike together. And, and she doesn't feel loved. I'm like, well, I don't see why not. There's something wrong with you. And Yoshi got it completely. Mm. Right. So, People aren't standardized. Mm. But if you want to use technology, you better be standardized. You know? If you're left-handed, well, I'm sorry. It's inefficient to stop our production line just to make left-handed things. You better get with a program and learn to use your right hand. Right? So the notion of individual human beings mm -hmm. clashes with the value of technology. Mm. And in a technological society, we don't say, well, okay, Let's be inefficient. Let's let's stop the production line and make twenty percent of the scissors we make left-handed scissors. Let's make them for people with small hands. Right? We we don't we don't form the machines to fit the people. We form the people Procrustean style to fit the machines. No, we form the machines to fit the majority of people. And then the leftovers. I mean, I mean, well, why not just have scissors with, like, you know, designed for toes, for example? It won't be that way. Okay, so, so, yes and no. So, for scissors, for scissors, we design the machines to fit the majority of the people. Yeah. Okay. But let's take. So this is this is step one of the argument, and then let's let's take the argument a step further. Let's look at. We touched on education earlier. Let's look at education. So, oh well, yeah. Okay, can of worms, but here we go. Right now, if this person, you know, is going to go and be an artist, and this person's going to go and be a car mechanic, and this person's going to go and be a physicist, and this person's going to go and be a chef, and this person's going to go out and live on a farm and hug trees and eat berries, right? Now, and this person's going to be a politician, and this person's going to get sent to a gulag in mainland China. So now, clearly, each of them has a very different need from the educational system but you say well okay by by a you know that the, the mentality of the machine is standardization mm. comparison if mm. being effective you say well how do i know it's effective if i can't compare it how can i compare it if it's not standardized so now i say well it's all very well saying you want to be a farmer and you want to be a chef and you want to do whatever but i need to set you a standardized exam and I don't set the exam that is applicable to the majority because there is no majority of people who are going to do the same job. Right? There's a hundred jobs out there, which means that not more than 2% of the people are going to be doing any given job. Right? What fraction of the population needs to learn calculus? Right? We do not optimize calculus exams to teach the majority of the kids the stuff they're going to know. Right? Yeah, but those, those calculus exams 
are optimized to find individuals who can help us to make this narrow sort of advancement within science, which puts things like mobile phones in our hands, which makes us, gives us airplanes, which have significant, well, you could say improvements on on speed throughout you know, of our movement, for example. I, I, I would love to think that, that calculus exams are designed for that purpose. All right. I, I have kids in the Hong Kong school system, and I think that that is not what the designers of exams had in mind. Uh, um, but oh so well, okay. We're gonna we're gonna bring it back to to, to, to the main argument is, is to say that you have you have this sort of logic, this this slow grinding logic of technology, which is optimized to the values of technology, not mm-hmm. optimized to the values of people, and. So this is where like a god starts to. This 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 no longer a, this a idea of a god, and now it becomes like this real thing that imposes, right, a reality, its own sort of like desires upon us, kind of thing. Right. Is that what you're referring to? Yes. So you have, and and I wouldn't refer. Well, actually, not okay, even so a god. No. Maybe. Okay. So there's 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 a there's a, a guy called Neil Postman who's an educationist who actually refers to these things as gods. Oh, interesting. Uh, small g. <laughs> Uh, but yes, so so yes, it's like that. So you have this system, and you say, well, you know, look at standardisation, for example. You know, Neil Gaiman should be listening when, to this podcast. <laughs> cinema link. Uh, so you know, when when I teach students something, yeah. I teach it to them in fifty minutes. Yeah. Is that because miraculously every idea I wish to convey yeah. can be conveyed in fifty minutes? No. Is that because the kids' attention span happens to be exactly fifty minutes long? No good deal shorter why it's because if you're you chunk up your day into 50 minutes you can efficiently move your kids from lecture to lecture yeah. you can efficiently assign rooms right. so the the you know when the kids come into the lecture theater they sit in the same lecture theater every week right if i want to go out and i want to show them a tree i can't because yeah. i can't traipse 120 quid kids out to go and look at a tree right so i am forced to be efficient to get the kids to sit in rows, yeah. to do the thing at the time the timetable says for the duration the timetable says. And if I say I can communicate to you everything I need to say in 20 minutes, right? So I give a 20 minute lecture and I say, right, you can leave now. I mean, half the students would be very happy, and the other half would feel short changed. They're like, but you're supposed to teach us for an hour, mm. right? It's like, surely if I've taught you the, the thing that you need to know, and I can do that in 20 minutes. Yeah. That's fine, but the university would say, Dr. Browner, we believe you've been uh, skimping on your lectures. It's like, if I'm a better teacher than everyone else and I can teach it to them faster, but no, it's the, it's the by the clock. It's the, it's the standardization that a lecture is something that lasts 50 minutes. So, so here we have this, this, so this, this set of values which technology comes with now, and most of them are inhumane. Most of them are not designed for people. So the next fun thing to say, what do we then do with our phone, given our phone is trying to take over us and given we don't necessarily want to become anti-vaxxers and let our kids die of polio, here's the question. Can we live in a technological world where we are surrounded by technological systems and live with those systems while not accepting or living by their values? And I think the answer is yes. 
Why do you say that? Because if the answer is no, then life becomes tremendously hopeless and I would just go and become an alcoholic. Or, or live on a desert island and watch my kids die of polio. Um, so, so, so here's, 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 then, here's a suggestion for a shape for an answer. Um, when... Relationships tend, to, if if you sort of list all the all the sort of technological machine values that that I was thinking of earlier, with you know, it, it should be efficient, it should be standardised, it should be, you know, most effective, it should be optimised, so on and so forth. Um, you should have metrics for it. It should be measurable. It should be blah blah blah. Um, and then to say, okay, these are these are machine values. They are broadly speaking inhumane values. And the nice thing is, a lot of the, the humane values are, in fact, the opposite of those. Um, for example, technology likes to make things, by its standard, convenient. Right? Your your phone is there, and, and your boss can get hold of you whenever she wants. <laughs> it's convenient for her. It's inconvenient for me, but never mind. But we sell it as convenient. So, to say, well, can we revel? in the inconvenience of the world. Um, my kids need to know, and this is really, really important, my kids need to know that parenting them and looking after them is inconvenient. Right? No one has kids because they think, you know what, that's going to be a convenient thing to do. That's going to make my life easier. Right? And, and you know, kids wander around they, they're concerned that you know they're going to inconvenience someone because they've bought this lie that that you know technological values apply to people yeah. right you don't buy a phone where all the buttons are in a really awkward place right you don't you don't strap your watch to your leg just so you have to roll up your trouser leg to look at the time you put it on your wrist because that's convenient yeah. so these are technological things yeah. and we we assume that because technology is so wonderful these values also apply to people and they don't and so we can say, okay, I can use technology, take a bike, for example, but I can subvert that technology to human ends. So, for example, when my bike breaks, the convenient thing to do is to take it to the shop and fix it. It takes 20 minutes to go to the shop, 20 minutes for them to fix it, 20 minutes to come home again. Jobs are good. It's convenient, it's fast, it's efficient, it's effective. Now, if I say, right, my bike is broken, I'll fix it. That's inconvenient. I'll teach my son to fix it. So we spend even 20 minutes. Even more inconvenient. Even more. <laughs> it is. My hat. It would take me, like... But I that's what my dad used to do with us. Right. It takes me five minutes to change a tyre on my own yeah. or 25 minutes to change it with my son. Yeah, yeah. And For your, example, one t just, just uh, I, I crashed the car once. And... My father made sure that I paid for every body part. We freaking repaired that car ourselves. Put it up in jacks. We we made makeshift things to realign the metal and do all of that stuff myself. Believe me, after that, I was like, okay, you know, let's drive this car better, you know. <laughs> right. And so you know, you've got you've got a double a double yeah. benefit or a triple benefit. One is you've learned to drive the car carefully. Yeah. 
right? <laughs> one is you've learned to repair a car, and the other is you've got, to, to, you know, you've managed to spend quality time with your dad. Well, right. I don't think it was that quality at that time. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> he was pissed. Okay. <laughs> but the lesson was learned. Right. And I'll never forget that. Right. Yeah. So, you know, so, so with, you know, fixing a bike, it takes me 20 minutes to go to the shop yeah. with my son to buy the tool. Yeah. Or, well, first of all, we have to go on, online to, you know, get the sure, videos. Sure. And I know how to repair it, but we watch the YouTube video so he knows how to repair it. Yeah, yeah. And work out what tools we need. Then we go to the shop, we buy the tools, we come back. We find it's the wrong size tools, so we go to the shop and pick out the right mm -hmm. one. We come back and then we spend the Saturday afternoon fixing it and so on and so forth, right? This is inefficient. This is, broadly mm -hmm. speaking, ineffective. Um, it's, it's inconvenient. And it's a wonderfully human thing to do. And so it's using technology. You know, I'm, I'm not saying you should do everything by hand. You can't use a socket set. I'm not saying you can't use a bike. Bike use technology, right? But to say, let us use technology in a way that fits humane values. Let us be creatively negligent of convenience. Mm -hmm. Let us deliberately do things the hard way. Mm. Um, I mean, so for example, Mike, I then at what point when, for example, these software systems start to reason and be able to start doing sort of like, you know, thinking themselves and decision making themselves, and then they come across these blundering human monkeys that are, that are busy doing their human things, and, and then, you know, they're like, okay, I, I, my, my God is efficiency and it's obliterate these things. Right. Um. How are you going to coexist with that? I think un understanding that this is, as it stands, a hypothetical situation, but yeah. not as hypothetical as would be comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was, I was, I was watching Terminator uh, the other day, uh, the latest one, and. I was I was having this discussion with a friend, um, and if if you look at if you look at a lot of the movies yeah. that, that that address this problem, um, I think they get it wrong. So if you you know if you uh, day after tomorrow, right? How do we how do we beat these how do we beat these machines that are you know, ruthlessly effective at killing? Yeah. Well, we build these weapons that are ruthlessly effective. Right, how do we how do we beat something that can fire a thousand rounds at us? Well, we develop a gun that can fire a thousand and one rounds. Um, you know, how do we how do we cope in a world where you know machines can build things faster than we can and build things cheaper than we can? Yeah. Well, we work out how to how to build weapons to destroy them faster and cheaper. And so, in each of these in each of these these sort of uh, these sort of science fiction scenarios. We beat the machines by adopting machine values. Uh -huh. We say we need to be effective. We need to be cheaper, faster. Now, the problem is, I, I, would, I would argue, and this is slightly hypothetical, but I would argue that in a fight against machines, we can never beat machines on their ground. Right? They will always be more effective than we are. But... If we sit and we say, right, we're going to do things the inconvenient way, then then we we we're fighting on our ground. So I mean, I'll I'll give you an example of of um, 
actually coming back, I mean, potentially coming back to the polio example. Um, I was uh, a couple of years ago. My my grandma was unwell, hmm. um, very unwell. Um, she was old, um, so it wasn't surprising that she was unwell. And if I'd have wanted her to live as long as possible, I could have sent money across to get her put into a very good care home and she would have had the best equipment and the best drugs and the best care and so on and so forth um, and that would have been effective I can set some measurable target goal that you know she should live as long as possible it's measurable it's quantifiable we've got this metric it's and I can do it effectively and I can do it efficiently and I can do it cost efficiently right this is everything that machine wants um, but on the other hand, what I actually did was I got on a plane from Hong Kong to the UK and for four days, back in the day when you could get on planes and fly somewhere for four days, you know, and because and, I, you know, I had to work, I couldn't take lots of time off work, but, but I went across just to visit her. And if you, if you evaluate that by any sensible, sensible metric, mm. right, the money that I spent on a plane ride could have been better spent on medication. The time that I said, you know, four days, is it, is it worth it? You know, that, how do I change the world by spending four days with her? And yet, it was a fantastically human thing to do. Mm. It, it, you know, we, we spend so much time trying to think of ways to make us think, we're looking for things that make us money. And so little time looking for things that make us human. And to, to I tell you, I mean, she, she, every single person that she saw for the rest of her life, you know, she told my grandson mm. came, to Hong Kong, uh, came from Hong Kong for four days to visit me. And she felt special. And it's, it's, by all the measurable metrics that you would care, it's a deeply ineffective, inefficient, impractical thing to do. Mm. Um, but it's human. And so I would suggest that, that when, when the machines come for us, we can't fight them on machine territory because machines will always be better machines than we are. But we can fight them on humane territory because we will always be better humans than them. Well, I'm listening to the Gulag Archipelago at the moment, the audiobook. And, uh, yeah, I don't see or hear much good humane values that come across in that scenario. I mean, there are plenty of suffering that goes on underneath this, this regime, but, yeah, to me, the... the Civilization or this humane thing that you discuss—it's just a very thin layer above this animalistic sort of tyrant of a of an animal that can arise within us. So, yeah, when we come to an example of of we say this is, is hypothetical scenario of of against being pit against the machines—it's it's already happening now, in the sense that. Um, the internet is owned by 
these companies like Google, etc., they've mobilized this massive um, advertising artificial intelligence entity, which is very clued up on the pitfalls and the, the weaknesses of humans. Um, and those, those things, those, those humanly things are the very things that this AI system is exploiting. And that's the reason why you get your, your teenage daughter sitting in the corner looking at the phone being a, a, a copperhead mm-hmm. of the... Uh, a copperhead refers to a battery cell. A copperhead um, powering this matrix kind of entity um, which is fueled on, on the tension of human beings. Um, the thing is, that how do, how, do you, how do you compete with that? How do you compete with that? Um, is it is it is it because of our financial system and of the quantitative easing, the, the the funny money that we've been using for so long that, you know, re- reduces the quality of of everything around us such that we are unable to persist the fruits of our labor into the future because everything is being devalued. So there's no point in 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 saving it's just becomes a very consumption oriented sort of a society so again i would i would say uh take an example i mean consumption is a wonderful example um that you know there is there is a brutal brutal logic to consumption and it was it was it was a deliberate logic to, to try and get the world to, to recover after the war and and people sat down and said okay well we can't just sell people the stuff at the rate they need it we have to have them consume it they have to take it in chew it up and spit not it out not one car in the garage but two right and not one car that they then fix but two that they replace every couple of years mm. um, and and you know, the, 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 the logic of, of technology, which I was discussing earlier, is very, very, very closely aligned to the logic of consumerism. It's very closely aligned to the logic of, of, of capitalism, modern economics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you, if you look at, you know, with, with the notion of things have to be measurable, they have to be improved, they mm-hmm. have to accelerate in their improvement this right. is that scientific the narrow niche scientific this is this is this, yeah. is this sort of these technological values yeah. yeah right so you say you know it's, it's not good enough that, that our kids are getting smarter you know it's not good enough that our kids learn what they need our kids have to be smarter than last year's kids yeah. and it's not good enough that they're smarter than last year's kids they need to be increasingly smarter than last year's kids over the kids year before right so we've got to have not just good enough but improvement, and not just improvement, but accelerating improvement. And you know, you're, you're yeah. it, right. We, we Moore's law is great for transistors, and it's terrible for human beings. <laughs> but we apply Moore's law to human beings. And do you think this is the reason why societies are becoming more and more closed and careful, like the Canadians? I mean, it's almost like they're moving towards this uh, Asian-style government, where you know, like where. You know, everything's so protected, everything's so thing, because now this, 
other parts of the humanity or, or human systems are under this huge constant ex, uh, expectation of improving, speeding up, that it's almost like you're driving so fast that it's like, oh, shit, I don't know if, this, if, I, if I can stay on this road. Right. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, government with, put up these guardrails. The right, yeah. Without getting into the details of, of you know, particular jurisdictions or areas national geopolitics but yes you, you have this problem where where you know because everyone is saying we have to go fast we have to get more and you know so you, you see it in education but obviously you see it in in economics as well where mm-hmm. you know gdp is a very modern notion it's a very recent notion and the notion that our gdp should be growing is, a, is an incredibly modern notion and the notion that our gdp should should grow without end is an insane notion oh, yeah, yeah. um and so, so you know, that this this machine technological logic and consumption and modern economics are all very tightly interbound. Mm. And so, I would argue then that, that to say that the things I said earlier about subverting machine mentalities can be carried across to cons- subverting consumeristic mentalities and also subverting economic mentalities. So, for example, um, you know that the. the great thing is you, know, you 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 can buy clothes and you can buy more clothes and you can buy cheaper clothes and so on and so forth um you can also fix your clothes right needle and thread it's dirt cheap it's much cheaper you know I, it doesn't matter what your hourly rate is if you work in mcdonald's it's still cheaper to buy a new pair of trousers than to fix your old pair of trousers yeah. right it's it's always cheaper to given given you know modern fast fashion right the, the, the way the fashion industry works is always cheaper to to replace rather than fix it's always faster to replace rather than fix um it's always more convenient to replace rather than fix and yet it's that much more humane to actually sit down with a needle and thread and I mean, I, I have I have trousers that I sit and I sew up and I patch and I darn. In fact, I, yeah, I mean, I can point to the various yeah. holes on these trousers <laughs> that I've fixed, and I can tell. I mean, I have the history of my evenings written in these trousers. I can tell you where I was when each darn was made, and I can look at these trousers and they contain memories of the last few years. My and wife conspires to throw my holy clothes away. <laughs> um. But, but, you know, you have, in doing that, it, you then, and this is going to sound very weird, but here we, you build a relationship with the garment. Yeah. It becomes, you know, mass, a, a pair of black trousers, a pair of black trousers, you take them off the peg, they're just black trousers, yeah. right? And so you have this machine mentality of standardization, uniform, interchangeability. Whereas once it becomes a pair that you've fixed, it actually becomes not the same as every other pair of trousers yeah. just as the bike that i've spent you know weekends fixing with my son you know it might i might be able to throw it away and buy a better one mm. but i wouldn't be buying it, it would be a different bike they're not interchangeable and so with consumerism again the same the same logic the same arguments of of subverting this this machine mentality i think holds there as well and so coming back to the daughter sitting in the corner being a copperhead, um, I, I think I think again similar arguments hold. So for example, there's a there's a, a, a principle which I apply with online interactions back and forth, uh, which has become rather difficult during during 
COVID, but which I stick by, <laughs> is is to say, you know, because you can have flame wars on Facebook, right? You know, sure. you, you write something, they write something back, and it just goes back and forth, and you don't converge, right? You, you, because Diverge. Facebook was not designed for humans to have a sensible conversation, right? Twitter yeah. was certainly not designed for humans to have a sensible yeah. conversation, right? You can't, you know, here... For three hours we can sit and then we can we can pick up this idea and go back to that one and yeah. how about this one? I can take notes and we can drink more tea and so on. Right, this is a human interaction. Yeah. Right. Whereas if I had to fit my answers into 140 characters, this wouldn't work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> goes without saying. So, so what I do is I say, okay, sometimes there's a question where where you can go back and forth a couple of times and it converges and that's really great. You know, if mm. someone says how about this and I say well that and again converge, we've got an answer. Good. I say, okay, here's the deal. I will allow this conversation to go back and forth three times. You, me, you, me, you, me. Right. If it's not converging after three times, I will stop that conversation. Right. And I will not pick it up again until I have physically sat across a table from you and discussed it over a cup of tea. Interesting. And I have people where a conversation has gone back and forth and I just, I've just stopped for 18 months. Uh-huh. And then, you know, I'll be in Wales and I'm like, I need to go and visit this person <laughs> because I can't. We've got this conversation burning in the background and, and, and I need. So, yes, it's 45 minutes out of my, you know, I'm driving down the M4. It's 45 minutes out of my way, but I'll go and visit them. And I'll, I'll text them. I'll say, we need to talk because there was this conversation we had a year and a half ago. Like, you're still you're going. You're still freaking hell. It's like. But I need to sit and drink tea with you, <laughs> right? It's not a fast way to have conversations. It is not efficient, yeah. but it is deeply humane. This is another reason, one of the primary reasons for this is I hope those copperheads are, watch this kind of thing. And it's like, oh, my God, this is not just like some sort of like a, it's deliberately three hours. What? People listen, three hours? God, what are you doing? How can a conversation carry on for three hours? Yes, exactly. <laughs> there are that many things in the world to discuss. We've, we've done American politics, Brexit, COVID. We're done. <laughs> the talking points, exactly, exactly. And then, and then the AI system is busy sitting there in the background, trying to conspire. How to, how can I create as much controversy as possible to drive to drive these little att attention, right. these copperheads to go to to go feed me some more? Right, but you know, I mean. I, uh, what I don't want to do, I don't want to look and say, you know, that the, the, the past was so much better. The past was certainly different. Yeah. Um, in, in the same way as I said, with, with science doesn't make progress. I think science doesn't make regress. It just is different. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if, if you look historically, you know, you'd sit in the pub for three hours of an evening. Yeah, and you'll go home and your and wife complains. <laughs> yes. But <laughs> you sit in the pub for three hours and you could have a conversation Good. and you people knew how to do that. Yeah. And so I think I think this is it's, it's, it is the lost art con conversa conversation. And now I now I just sound old. I'm sorry, but but to get no, you don't. Good. Thank but you. this is exactly this is exactly the point that needs to be. Sorry to interrupt you. It's almost like we're the tradition and the modern thing. As soon as you start to forget the tradition. And you get, st and you, and you know, you're going to get the old that keep that stick with the tradition, and they don't see the the advance in the future. And then you get groups of people that just want to do the modern stuff, but then forget about the tradition. This is when like catastrophe starts to think. So the the old needs to continue rejuvenate its 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 
its understanding and then the new needs to continually go back and say why was it done in the old way right so this is kind of like a and so this is something actually this is something where technology becomes tremendously destructive right exactly in as much as if you go back 150 years Mm. the language spoken by someone 150 years ago and someone spoken 120 years ago is more or less the same right yeah if you wanted to know something, you could go to your grandma and you could ask her. And your yeah. grandma understood the world in which you lived. Yeah. Right? Because, because the toys you play with are more or less the same as the toys your grandma plays with. Sure. And the tools that you, your dad needs to use at work are much the same as the tools that his dad needed to use. And so you have this intergenerational back and forth discussion where the young are in contact with the thoughts of the old. And, and they get to see that wisdom, they get to see that experience, they get to see that cynicism, they get to, you know, something to take the edge off their idealism maybe, but also the old people get a bit of encouragement to maybe hold on to their idealism. Right? But you have this interaction back and forth. Now, it's I like, don't... It's I, like ships passing in the night. Right, things change so fast. I say, you know, I say to my students, you know, I, I remember when I got my first Facebook account, I was doing my PhD. I needed something to take my mind off the pain. Um, but now, you know, I say, to the, I say to the students, you know, okay, for the course, can we post this on Facebook? You guys use Facebook, right? And nah. I, to talk to my mum. <laughs> right? So, I mean, I was talking to someone the other day, and they said, oh, this is whatever program. And I said, what's that? They said, it's like this. I said, well, what's that? They said, it's like this. They had to go about four generations of programs back before. I know that one. I've heard of that. Right? So you have this problem that... that things change so fast that between one generation and the next there is no point of contact and because young people then think there is nothing that they either can or need to talk to old people about and that by young people i mean you know people in their 20s and by old people i mean people my age you know 15 20 years older right that they they assume okay there's nothing here that needs to be said and so we live in this ahistoric thing where it's now and there's no contact yeah. with a, a wider perspective. Yeah. And, and the speed with which technology advances, the speed with which technology changes, plays into that generational dislocation. Yeah. So, uh, without wanting to get too, too depressed, let's see if I can, I can sort of say something that's hopeful on that. So I was, I was chatting to a colleague uh, uh, yesterday um, who, is, who is older who is not from my generation, but, but more, more uh, experienced in the world. And, and we were having a similar discussion to this one. And so she was, she was looking at, so she's, she's in Hong Kong, teaches on the mainland, but cannot go to the mainland for reasons of pandemics. And, and so she's teaching these younger university students and she said, you know, how can I, how can I adjust to, to, you know, reach the younger kids where they're at? And so we, we discussed that for a bit. And then, and then I said, but, but also, you know, there's, there's, you bring an experience and a life perspective which would benefit them as well. Absolutely. So, for example, technology is all about immediacy. Technology is about now, right? If I, you know, I go online, I want to look at a YouTube video. If I can't find it on the first, you know, four in the list of, of the things, right? It's like, oh, it's probably gone somewhere, right? If I look for a paper, right, I'm not going to walk to the library to get it. I just... Google, done, fine. Right. So I expect it immediately. I expect it now. I expect my phone updates to come now. When an email comes, it goes ping and I check it. 
So these, these technological values, they prime me for immediacy, and it's a deeply inhumane value. Whereas to say, I am older, I, I cannot, I am physically unable to respond to things as fast as you guys. It takes me a while to reach across and press send, <laughs> right? But, but to bring this perspective that says the world is not all about immediately now, this is good. You know, if we look again at education, mm. right? If you want to learn the trumpet, you cannot learn the trumpet now. No. Right? It There's takes no matrix down years, there right, that. that you can't plug in and learn it. Right? And and so because technology has primed us for now, technology has primed us to be really bad at learning things. You know, we've got, you know, we are old, yeah, Google sure. gives us information at our fingertips, but it doesn't allow us to master skills because yeah. skills cannot be downloaded now. Yeah. And so, so coming from this intergenerational perspective allows us to sort of, to say that the world can be different from what you're used to. Mm -hmm. and, and doing that breaks this machine mentality. Mm. Um, one other, okay, slight digression, but it's, it's hopefully relevant to the conversation. I mean, so looking at, at inconvenience, we were discussing how to be deliberately inconvenient. And so, like, one of the great things about Zoom is, you know, previously you give a lecture and you give it to, like, 100, 100 students and 100 students would listen to it and that's fine. But now you, you, can, you can put a YouTube video online and, like, a 1,000 people can watch it. And, you know, I've got this much bigger reach. And it doesn't have, you know, if I'm giving a lecture, they have to be in that place at that time for that duration of when I'm doing it. And we go, well, YouTube's so convenient because I just put the lecture online and then anyone in the world at any time they want can watch it at their own convenience. This is convenient. You said, but, but what do we lose when I'm in a lecture? <laughs> if someone has a question, they can, they can go, hang on. And, you know, if someone wants to come up and ask me a question afterwards, you know, there's always, you know, 10 minutes after the lecture you've got this, this gaggle of students who goes but what about this how about that right you've got this human interaction which on a YouTube thing you can't get and on a Zoom lecture where you just zoom to a thousand unknown IP addresses you can't get so I said well, well here's what you can do if you, if you want to reach a thousand people but you want to maintain this humane aspect then you better make sure that it's inconvenient right don't put it online afterwards say if you want to listen to this lecture come at this time and we will then have an interpersonal interaction and i can't do q a with a thousand people i can only do it with a hundred or maybe i can only do it with 20 which means i'm going to have to give the lecture 10 times but mm. if i need to give the lecture 10 times you know twice a day for for a week that is inconvenient but by gosh it's humane and so, so you can still use the technology, but not accept that you have to go with the technological values. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, my, my father was born in 1928. And... Uh, I'm I'm of the generation that, same as you, that you know when we were youngsters we didn't have the internet, we didn't have mobile phones, and uh, your parents was the the first person to answer your questions. Papa, what does this mean? And then you know, he was our intel. My mum and dad were our internet of the time, and it's fascinating that the amount of knowledge that 
that they learned to have on the ends of their fingertips that they could recall um, faster than Google could. <laughs> and any information that we couldn't get, initially my father would say, pass me the dictionary or pass me this, and he would go through it. And then eventually uh, it, it, was, it was us that he said, dictionary you know and then and then and then we would be on the on the on the ground in front of papa and then we would sort of go look up that word and then inevitably we would see a whole bunch of other words that next to him like papa what is papa i bet you don't know what the word exigent means <laughs> of course i know what the word exigent means you know like and 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 it's these these sorts, these sorts of things that sort of like form these memories of, of my dad and then and then of course he, he passes away and these are the things that I've got left over from from him, and um, yeah, and and it just it's it's it, it's just rather concerning that I I see the youngsters nowadays, and I know time time and tide has moved on, and I'm sure they they've got similar sorts of experiences, but I don't see eleven year olds throwing themselves off buildings. I don't see that. I mean. I do see that now. I do see that now. And, and that's, that's really concerning. It's really concerning. So, so like, yeah, this, this is one of, the, one of the reasons why I wanted you on, to, 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 to come and talk about this very issue. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do we navigate ourselves through this, this, this quagmire that we've created, this technological quagmire, this forest that even myself as a, you know, I'm, I'm writing internet pro protocols. These youngsters are talking about technology, like applications that I don't even want to know. I feel like, I feel like an old guy, <laughs> and yet I can write those applications. I understand the psychological psychology behind it. I understand why they exist. I understand on a protocol level how that stuff works. And and yeah, there's this whole sort of community that have arisen that are not connected mm -hmm. to the papas and mamas. And as a result, it's like, you know, predators can walk into those environments. Yeah. I mean, I think so maybe to, to give two, two responses to that. One is, I mean, one thing that we do at home with our kids, which I, it's, it's hard and it's getting harder, but I, I stick to it as far as I possibly can. It's we have a house rule that says no phones at the table. Right. So when we sit down for breakfast, dinner, lunch, whatever once we sit down at the table yeah. there are no phones and if your phone rings you hang it up yeah and if it if it beeps and it buzzes you ignore it yeah. and and you know the, so the, the argument as we give it is to say you know we, we don't have that much time to sit down together yeah. and there is nothing on the phone which is going to be more important than actually having a conversation with the people physically face to face with you. yeah and I mean, <laughs> we have on date nights as well. I want to go with my wife, and and but you know you'll see people at the, the next table. Beautiful girl. Oh God. And and the guy is. This gets up. This is a bee in my bonnet. You're like man. I don't. There is nothing. There can be nothing on your phone which is worth looking at more than the woman in front of you. I promise you. But <laughs> I, I only occasionally actually go up and tap the guy on the shoulder and say that, and my wife hates me for it. But. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, we, we, we hold this rule. We say, okay, no phones at the table. And you know, occasionally good for you. Good for you for doing that. <laughs> really. 
how fortunate is that guy to have that? <laughs> like, I, I, I've been known, I've been known to sit at a table with mates, and they know that this really irritates me. Like, everyone pulls the phone out, and it, and it's like, okay, endure, 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 and then at at some point in the evening, I'm like, right, stack the phones, everybody, stack those fucking phones, put them over there, put something on top of it. Right. I, I'm I'm here to be with you, not to be with this bloody phone. <laughs> And, and, and of course, they sort of sneak it away. And, but like, you know, I suddenly need to go to the loo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. But I mean, and so, so and the nice thing is the nice. I mean, so the, the thing that I'm dreading and one of the reasons why we're now really having to like, I'm really working to compose it hard is because, you know, my, my eldest is 11 and he's mm. reaching the point where, you know, if we don't set the example now by saying this is this is just this is the way the world is. There are no phones at the table. Right. It's going to be very, very soon where he wants to have a phone and wants to have a phone at the table yeah. and if, if if suddenly then I introduce the rule that says oh no I'm going to put my phone down now and you have to do too well hang on what's that yeah. but if if he can say okay yeah Feb cop for the last 11 years you've lived this through yeah. and the nice thing is the really nice thing is sometimes like my phone will buzz and just reflex right I'll go and I'll check it and my six year old son will say daddy no phones at the table <laughs> and I have to congratulate him. I'm like good point Benny well made down it goes yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you set the example of not fighting, right. not arguing and making excuses. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, fair cop. Put it down. You are correct. Yeah. And next time when you're old and you have a phone, I say no phones at the table. <laughs> Hopefully he will follow my example. Um, yeah. But yeah, and, and, and I, I think another, another thing that where, again, wanting to sort of in, inject some, some notes of hope into this conversation, because I think, I think it's not, Doom and gloom. I, I think it's not doom and gloom, and and the, the the future has the potential to be absolutely terrible, but I think that we don't need to walk into it thinking that it's going to be, uh, and I think there are things we can do. And, and one, ex- I mean, my job, what I, what I do at Hong Kong U is, um, you know, a lot of academics, like physicists and engineers and things, right? They 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 have been taught that technology is neutral. They've been raised in this. And most engineering professors do not read philosophy. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't like they have enough to do running departments and things, right? They don't mm-hmm. read philosophy. They don't, they don't look at these wider ideas. And when their f- f- um, engineering professor said technology is neutral, they accepted it. And so now they tell their students that technology is neutral. And the next generation is going to pass on the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so one of, one of my tasks, and I kid you not, I've had... I've had engineering professors tell me, um, you know, that there is there is nothing that an engineer does where where they need to think of, of wider moral problems apart from what any person would face. You know, an engineering professor, an arts professor, we there are basic ethical problems we have to worry about, but there's nothing specific to engineering. Yeah. So I said, okay, is there any anything that an artist could do whereby following their work, it, you'd be able to press one button and wipe out a city. And the professor thought for a second and said, okay, apart from nuclear weapons, there is nothing that, <laughs> I mean, special pleading, yeah. here we go. Right. So they, they are ingrained with this idea that, that they don't have to think about this question. They're just making the phones. It's not up to them how you use it. Yeah. And so, so part of my job is just to walk with academics and say, there is a whole area of really interesting research Right. Once you like open the gates to this, there's interesting questions. There's whole new 
things that you can research, things that you can look into, ways you can think, problems you can approach. There's all sorts of new and interesting things that you can get funding for, right? <laughs> There's new stuff that you can do if only you, you realize that this, this vast swathe of questions exists, mm. but most of them don't realize that the questions even exist. And so, so part of my job is, is just, just walking alongside academics and saying, There's, you know, don't, don't think that you need to bracket out that is alt subjective value laden religious questions just because you're an engineer right they come in and and it is possible to connect them to your research and it is necessary to connect them to your research and it's good to connect them to your research i like that but then at some point i do get worried about the social justice angle that sort of comes into that so how far is too far I think this, this kind of question is really important. Yeah, so do, what, do you, what's, your, what's your concern for the about social justice angle? Um, okay, so, well, we know that, we know that um, if, if I start to resonate with, like, for example, um, a particular group of people, I say, okay, this, this group of people is... Is the is the Aryans no good? We've we've seen that experiment before. It happened before. And then, what's the opposite? What's the opposite end of that spectrum? If if I start to say, yeah, okay, um, you know, uh, social justice for everybody, and now I start to create a group of people, and I feel need to feel significant in this group of people, and I start virtue signaling to this group of people about how important I am, and maybe money starts to flow in these circles, and I need to justify it, and it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. There's this sort of like this entity, this this machine that becomes all-consuming that eats itself, that's always like trying to find uh, issues and problems about itself, and where where can I one-up you because because you weren't you weren't the right level of social justice. Times and tides have moved on. Now we've got a new level of social, social justice. And, and if you're of a certain skin color, well, I mean, it doesn't matter because it's, it's, it's um, um, you, you, you've, you, just by even ignoring the fact that, you, that you're, or just by saying that you're, for example, uh, not racist, well, that means you're a racist. You see what I mean? So yeah. it reaches these sorts of like uh, completely logically incorrect, crazy. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's, that's easy. That's easy. Oh, yeah? Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. No, don't do that. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, that's Sorry. easy. But like, uh, like, but, but. No, okay, so, so I, I get where you're going. And, and so I think. Like lines need to be drawn. I, I would, I'm going to be careful here, I would not draw lines. Ooh. Ooh. Um, partly because lines are really good to fight over. That's true. Right? If, you know, so, so you say, okay, as soon as you, like, okay, it's, it's one thing to say you should eat less meat, and then the next person says, yeah, but I'm, I'm vegetarian. Yeah. You, you, you meat eater, you're, you're destroying the planet. And the next person says, well, I'm vegan, you vegetarian, <laughs> you're, right? And so, so the vegetarian sits in the middle and says, right, well, clearly it's the vegan has gone too far, right? Yeah. So you need, to go, you need to go some way towards saving the planet, but don't go nuts over it. Where do you draw the line? 
and obviously and it's very simple right the line for not enough is just next to me here and the line for too much is just next to me here right well <laughs> right and no one when they're drawing the lines is going to draw any other lines than a little bit this way one side and a little bit this way the other and oh look i'm in the right place hmm. right this is what happens when we draw lines hmm. now on on the other hand i mean if so so one of one of the that was a very human thing to do Turning your watch upside down. Sorry, this was. <laughs> no, no, no <laughs> we've reached about three hours, so we sort of like we can we yeah, can start yeah. to run down. Okay. <laughs> so so yeah, no, this is this is just me playing with it, um, and maybe subconsciously realizing that it's not important anymore because we're done, and it just yeah. now now we have we have the machine logic that says good conversations need to last three hours, exactly, <laughs> and we have the humane logic that says look at me like I care. <laughs> um, so, so to answer your question, because you've asked, I've started, so I'll finish. Um, right, so I think, I think rather than drawing lines, I wouldn't draw lines. Yeah. And so I'd say, I mean, in the notion of, again, recognizing the humanity of these things, it's really easy, if we can categorize things, if we can put things in boxes that says, this is enough and this is too much. Yeah. It's one thing for this person to say, you know, they love the environment and they're going to this conference to speak about it, but they they took a plane to get there that's clearly wrong right and yes maybe they planted trees but they planted the wrong kind of trees or they planted it with a charity that is, hasn't been certified you know there's a, whatever you want you can you can pick why someone's doing something mm -hmm. wrong and i think i think one thing that's that's important and lacking in a lot of the, the discourse is a level of compassion mm -hmm. um that says you know, th there are people who do not agree with me. I mean, there are people who, who are genuinely fighting for the opposite of what I'm fighting for. Mm. There are people who are fighting for the same thing, but maybe not as hard as me. And there are people who are fighting for the same thing, and they're just complete nutters that have lost all connection with sanity that are, that are way over here, right? And, and to have compassion for them to say, I wouldn't do it that way, but you're not me. Uh, and and to to be less, you know, to be less destructive in what we're trying to do. Mm. You know, I, I look at, you know, the the way people engage with. I mean, parenting, A for example. Belligerent. Too. We've right. Yeah. We've we've touched on parenting at various points mm. in 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 this. You know, there are different ways that people in Hong Kong parent. Oh, very much, very much. And. So. The, the, one of the things I learned very early on in, in parenting is whatever you do, you know, elimination communication, right? If you if you train your if you potty train your child at this age, well, that's child abuse because because whatever, right? If you haven't trained them by this age, that's child abuse, right? Whatever you do, there's someone who's going to tell you that's child abuse, and it's wonderful just to have have people who parent differently from you to say, you know, parenting is tough, and and we're working at it and you're working at it and I wish you all the best and if there's anything I can do to help you to raise no. slightly well-adjusted kids I'm here for you <laughs> right I mean that does not require a line to be drawn yeah yeah um, uh, there's some rather aggressive people that can walk into these sorts of build into these environments and like 
Yeah, when you de when you're dealing with reasonable people, it can you you can have that sort of discussion, but sometimes those rather disagreeable, belligerent people, well, I don't know how to handle them, but that's probably for another conversation. That's, that <laughs> might be uh, another conversation. Yeah, <laughs> Mike, thanks so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Really, it's really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. We'll have you on ten twenty uh, episodes <laughs> later. <laughs> Think about something else and bring it up. Brilliant. Let's 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 kill this. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Don't go anywhere uh, just yet. Um, Mike sent a few follow-up messages after the Indaba, um, and uh, I thought I'd just play them for you. And here we go. So Mike's voice is a little bit muffled from the mask. So here you go. Hi, Stuart. It's Mike. Uh, thanks for this evening. It was fun. I enjoyed the opportunity to sit and just bounce around ideas for a couple of hours. Uh, yeah, thanks. Now, here's for the bad news. The bad news is, huh, I have all of your questions still going around my head. And it would be really nice to say, okay, well, that was three hours of fun, and now I'm just going to stop thinking about those questions. But it doesn't work like that. And so... Now, at like random intervals, I'm just going to send you messages going, oh, I just had a thought. So I know it's no use to you, but here we go. I'm going to throw it in anyway, because here we go. So you asked, <laughs> I'm really sorry, you asked, like, where do you draw the line? And I've just realized, as I was on the MTR, I've just realized another reason why I'm really not comfortable with drawing a line. Now, I know I gave a couple in the, in the talk, but I've just realized another one. Like, lines are simple and they are neat and they are efficient and lines hold universally like they're nicely uniform it's like here is the line and no one gets to cross it now for all of those reasons lines are deeply inhumane right they're a technological construct so here's the, the situation we actually face right because people are messy right people have hopes and dreams and visions and desires and context and nuance Right, there are some people where if they cross the line, it's like that is absolutely, totally inappropriate. You should be nowhere near that line. And there are other people where it's like, hey, I'm glad you got this far. Well done, good effort, given where you started. Hat off. So, yeah, so, so the reason why I wouldn't attempt to draw a line, in addition to all the reasons I gave in the discussion earlier, is because drawing lines is a technological mindset and inhumane. Hope you have a good evening. And the flip side, of course, the, the, the refusal to draw a line, the insistence on taking each situation on a case-by-case -case basis, is that it is insanely inefficient. Right? If you sit down with someone and say, well, okay, you're, you're doing this, but why are you doing that? In, in what context are you doing that? To whom are you doing that? What are you trying to achieve? in your situation with this person right now as it stands and te teaching treating each situation as an individual case to understand it to actually get to grips with a human being involved that's that's inconvenient to to say i'm not going to sit and judge this as being a good or a bad thing to do or appropriate or inappropriate until i've actually sat down and done the footwork and got all relevant information and understood the situation 
That's really inefficient. That's really slow. That's wonderfully humane. And uh, yeah, doesn't work with drawing lines. Doesn't work with a technological mindset. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm just rambling. But hey, I'm on a walk home. So I figured I might as well share what my brain was thinking. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm gonna share this one and then I'm gonna be home and then I'm gonna let you get on with your evening and not be trolled by me sending more messages. But, okay, so you made, you raised the point about with the, with the left-handed scissors where you said, okay, so now the left-handed people have been pressed into conformity with what's convenient for most people. And I said, but ultimately the machine presses you into conformity with something which is not convenient for anyone. And so the example I used, we then went down a rabbit trail with education. But here's an example of cars in America. Um, so with, with people get cars, and as you look at the building of suburbia, you end up with this technological mindset where you say, OK, well, cars are good because then you can get around faster. But then you realise that in order to have the space for the roads and in order to have the space for the parking and so on and so forth, everything gets more spaced out and you get shops that are miles away from anywhere so now if you don't have a car you cannot survive or go shopping and now everyone lives two hours commute from work so you've hit this sort of Nash equilibrium whereby if everyone got rid of cars and you just started from scratch and everyone just lived closer together and locally and you didn't have these super highways running straight through the middle of your neighborhood so that you could get around without cars it would be better for no one to have cars but now, in the name of ease and simplicity and doing things efficiently and quickly, people spend two hours a day in a traffic jam. And that's better for no one, but you've got this suboptimal Nash equilibrium that technology kind of ushered you into and you can't get out of. Um, yeah, like I say, I'm going to leave you to your evening now. I'm going to try and stop sending messages, see if I succeed. And that's it. Oh, Mike, thanks so much for the conversation. Really appreciate it. Hope everybody else enjoyed it. Cheerio, ladies and gentlemen.